welcome back to Sloyd Cast. This is your host, Mark Angelini, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mike, rubbing oil on my new bench, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we are very excited today to be joined by Reed Schwartz. He is our first uh, exclusive tool maker to That's join right. us on the podcast. So uh, yeah, welcome, Reed. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to hear you guys. <laughs> Same here. And uh, he's also coming in cold uh, without any understanding of what our podcasts are like. So he's also kind of a, a guinea pig. <laughs> That's <laughs> <in> right. <away. laughs> um, but uh, I know many people know who you are, Reed. You've, uh, you've got a, a wide reach on social media. But for folks that don't know, um, you're a, a tool maker and a craftsperson. Mm-hmm. You've mm-hmm. done a lot, from what I've seen, um, lots of different crafts. Uh, but it seems like tool making is kind of like your primary vocation at this point. Definitely. Yeah, that's, that's the bread and butter. <laughs> so can you, can you give us a rundown of where you live and, and what your life is like and how, do you, how you make a living as a craftsman? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so again, I'm, I'm going to do my best not to go on wild tangents and sort of try to keep it, <laughs> keep it as concise as I can. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, Reed Schwartz. I live in New Hampshire in Sullivan County, kind of southwest corner of the state. We were just talking about that a little bit beforehand. It's uh, close to Sunapee, uh, very close to the Vermont border. It's a very quiet rural place, uh, mostly uh, a couple of dairy farms, a couple of other like meat hmm. producers and this kind of things. Um, my folks have a sheep farm. Um, okay. And nice. so I, uh, my wife and I live next door to them and uh, we participate in, you know, large scale gardening and all of this kind of stuff. Nice. Uh, spend a lot of time working on the farm. Um, but yeah, the vocationally, the main moneymaker, the main thing that I do for work is making tools. And Mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of ways, that's been, that's been the main sort of thing, thread tying many different crafts and many different things that I've like thrown myself into and tried to make uh, my vocation. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, the, to try to say how I ended up as a tool maker is like almost impossible. It's like, (laughs) you know, it's happenstance and, you know, guttural decision-making. The passion for it was there ever since I was little. Um, Mm, Okay. There was a period where like my dad was working as an animator. He was commuting from out here in the sticks into the city. Uh, Not every day, but it was like for a few days at a time, like uh, he'd crash with a friend or whatever it was. And, uh, they had bought this farmhouse um, that is 1820s and uh, had moved their family into it and were enthralled trying to sort of fix it up, like get some of the lead paint out. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, really actually like get a place that had fallen out of use as housing back into those kinds of conditions. And Hmm. a local guy, uh, Mike Otterson, who was just like a real old school um, carpenter was doing a lot of the work. And I spent a lot of time as like a toddler sort of being almost supervised by him Hmm. and just sort of watching the stuff that was going on and assisting, eh, not insisting with building, but like, handing some nails over and <laughs> experiencing the excitement of watching things go together yeah, um, yeah. and working nice. with materials. And obviously being on the sheep farm, there was a lot of things to get fixed, a lot of things to do. 
um, gate mending, all sorts of stuff. Um, oh yeah. And, uh, that lifestyle really brings these kinds of like, there's mandatories, there's like stuff you can want to do or not want to do, but then there's the things you have to do. Yep. Um, especially dealing with animals, you know? Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> so I feel like those, those were some of the like underpinnings that formed the like, I don't know, work ethic is maybe the right word. Uh, that would later, you know, sort of give me the independence to be able to solve problems on my own, which was ultimately what like coalesced into me being able to make tools. When I went to college, like I had worked for a couple of years for a neighbor who has a sculpture practice. He's a bronze sculptor. So I was experienced, like I got exposed to the idea that like one piece of metal can cut another piece of metal. Mm -hmm. And that, realization that like metal wasn't permanent hmm. and that it was actually something that was like fairly easily manipulated with heat um, left me with this real excitement in that direction and when i got to art school i went to art school i, I guess i'm sort of meandering here i'm doing the tangent thing uh, um, but I, <laughs> I, uh, I went to uh, massachusetts college of art in boston that was like okay uh, i could get like a state sort of tuition deal to be able to go there uh, because they had something worked out with New Hampshire, like the sculpture major wasn't available up here, so I could go to the Mass Art because it was a state-run art school. Okay. And they had these wild facilities. Um, I wish I could remember the stats because it was pretty impressive stuff, like large bronze casting furnace, really big <laughs> burnout kilns, um, really nice, really like advanced knife-making setup. Oh, wow. um, because there was an ABS master smith uh, who taught a night class at the school and had set up a small like grinding station and all this kind of stuff. And uh, the cool thing about mass art was that it was a state school. So it was pretty like blue collar, pretty working class. Mm -hmm. And we were like very much encouraged towards uh, self-education, self-direction. And so like the metal shop as a freshman, um, I was able to get signed off on just with some introductions to some pieces of equipment from like upperclassmen. And I had the free reign of the place. I could go there on any time that a class wasn't running and like light the forge and like mm. try to do stuff. Mm. And That's I mean, awesome. it was almost instant. I had two other mm. friends who fell into it sort of the way that I did. Um, the one guy, Andrew Mears, he's now like a ABS master Smith. He makes like really high end knives, outrageous, amazing stuff. <laughs> Um, he was like a laser beam on katanas and I was like a laser beam, <laughs> wow. like just stuck on hand planes. Huh. And the two of us like kicked these ideas around and sort of taught ourselves how to forge weld and make laminations and make a few blades. And, um, Mears took the night class. So he really like had the skills and then he was kind of like feeding me the skills and we were just like doing it, you know? Uh, and they almost kicked us out. Because, <laughs> hey, wait a minute, guys. You're supposed to be making conceptual art, not woodworking not tools. Yeah. That's funny. You know, well, this, I, it's still art. <laughs> we felt so. And, you know, yeah. and we thumbed our noses at things and this and that. Uh, Mears went through the whole program. He made it through sculpture. I didn't. I left uh, <laughs> and became, uh, what did they call it? Uh, at the time, it was an open major. So really, at that mm -hmm. point, like, I left all majors behind and, like, 
designed my own curriculum. So I studied mm, nice. uh, lots of metalworking stuff, um, but mostly I was doing foundry work back then. Hmm. Um, so bronze wow. casting. Um, yeah. And that was, that was a really cool experience too, because the professor was kind of like on his way out, almost retired. And he really ran that class like, uh, like uh, an apprenticeship. So like he, if you had interest and aptitude and could like safely fire up the furnace, then a couple weeks later, he's like, yeah, so you run the furnace now. Hmm. Wow. And he just put you in charge. Wow. And uh, so I think I taught that class or I helped him teach that class uh, for three or four semesters after that. And um and uh, got kind of chased out of that corner because of the because of the functionality thing. I was making too many things that were useful. <laughs> I was also <laughs> like taking commissions from the sculptor that I used to work for and casting bronzes for him on the weekends, which turned into kind of a problem because the school only had so much money to spend on uh, on on fuel. And uh, when I'm firing up the furnace for my own uses, that's using a lot of fuel. Right, right. So we had issues. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I've always had issues with authority or like being sort of uh, pointed towards something and saying that there's something you can't do. And then I'm like, okay, watch me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Now I need to do it. Uh, now, now I really need to do it. So anyway, open major, wandering around. I did some printmaking. Um, I loved Intaglio. Uh, and uh, etching and um, mm. did quite a bit of that. Um, but uh, I guess it was around, that, that probably gets me about halfway through my college career. And uh, that's when I was really, really like crashing into the wall. Like mm. there's no way that I can self-support myself when I leave this place making hand planes in the Japanese mm. tradition, unless I like right. truly pursue that and make it the only pursuit seek out connections in Japan, go there, learn, and then come back. And that nice. was like the only sort of path that seemed available to me. And my buddy Mears, who was like laser beam on the katanas, was pursuing that path. He wanted to go hmm. to Japan. And he, f he was hooked up with some of the professors who had connections over there. And Oh man, was it a heartbreak when he got word back that no one would take him because he's adopted and he's Korean. Oh, and it no. was like, hmm. sure, we'll take you if you're a white guy, but we will yeah. not take you if you're Korean. And hmm. wow. it was enough to put me off that path too. I was like, you know, forget this, you know? <laughs> yeah. Forget anything that's like you have to submit to some antiquated, you know, ideas about some power structure in order right. to like slowly be like, given the knowledge, you know, mm -hmm. the, the other experiences I had had already proved that like, it's the skills that take time to earn and that are really the bread and butter of any craftsperson. The knowledge, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the knowledge that those skills are based on. I'm, now, don't let me make a rule because I know that there's always exceptions and I'm not trying to be like dogmatic about it, but like, the knowledge should be free. Like the barriers mm -hmm. should not be there to keep you from even trying to practice. Mm -hmm. Right. Certainly. Yeah. It's the practicing is where you actually gain the fluency. Right. So I was just like sort of adamant that I would pursue situations that felt that way. 
And the only opportunity I had that was anything that was like going to make any money was an apprenticeship that I kind of got recommended to in a uh, cabinet shop. Hmm. So while I was in school, I took the apprenticeship and started working um, under a cabinet maker. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was an apprenticeship, quote unquote. I was paid a living wage and uh, did not work for minimum wage. Uh, I think I started there at almost 17 bucks an hour or something like that. Oh, nice. nice. Um, but it was production good. work and it was a high end cabinet shop. And mm. so it was particle board, MDF, and veneer. <laughs> yep. Like, this yeah. was like really wow. fancy stuff, but what was inside it was like <laughs> just glue. Yeah. Right. Um, lots of hard lessons there. Uh, mm. Lots and lots of just the harshness of like coming from the education environment into like the production shop environment and how like how much things mattered all of a sudden. Where mm. in the other realm, it was like perfectly fine to throw a piece of plywood away just for an experiment. Yeah. But in yeah. this realm, like you do not make a mistake cutting that piece of plywood because it was sequenced inside 60 other sheets of plywood and it matches Mm. the one before it and the one behind it. And there's really only one place in that whole job that that one sheet of plywood can go. And so you can't screw it up. Um, So being able to manage like these, these big complex things, I was, I worked there uh, a number of years. I'm like, iffy on the timeline now um, because it's been long enough that I I don't totally remember, but I I worked my way up to lead bench and I had a couple of people working under me. Um, And my girlfriend at the time got an offer from a fashion design firm in New York City. So I quit (laughs) and we went there. Oh, nice. Uh, And that just about killed me. I made it through three (laughs) years in the city. Oh man, um, when, that's a lot of years. Yeah, it was long for me. Yeah, it felt like ten. <laughs> um, it also was when the two thousand eight crash happened. Uh. Um, so to put it, <laughs> tangents. Let's put it all the way into perspective. When I was like a little little kid, I was showed skill and talent at drawing, and I was real obsessive, and I spent lots and lots of time drawing. So uh, largely the reason I ended up at art school was because I had a kind of set course towards illustration. That was like my dream. Okay. Um, yeah. my, my whole family is full of, uh, uh, I want to say artists, but like really it's like working artists more in the design mm-hmm. realm. It's like my aunt is an illustrator and she does book design. My father yeah. was uh, an animator, but he's also like a plein air painter and a sheep farmer. Hmm. And <laughs> then like my grandpa was a ghost artist for Bob Kane on the original Batmans. So he did oh, like cool. interesting. the Very first, cool. like, I forget. It's like the first hundred or so or, or more than that. Again, if any of my relatives listen to this, they'll be like, gosh, you really don't have the story. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he was a ghost artist for Batman. So like there's this precedent in the family for like, if you show an inkling of skill towards, you know, the the visual arts, then like everyone encourages you and, and pushes you. In yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Um, so when I meant, when I went to New York, okay, good job, Reed, short tangent. When I went to New York, <laughs> I'm like, this is when I will like see if I can make that work. And so I just, I, I, I set about making a book, which is what you call it when you're an illustrator and you're like, you know, hitting the pavement to go, you know, from publisher to publisher or editor to editor or whatever. 
you've yeah. got this book that you're sending to people or showing them or meeting with people or whatever it was. Kind of like a portfolio, sort of? Essentially, yeah. And it's supposed to sell you as one kind of artist or another or whatever it was. And it was uh, pretty clear to me pretty quickly that I could get some work, but that my skill set and my interests were just like way in the wrong direction. Like this was mm -hmm. a realm where like, you need to know the names of all of the different art directors that there are that work for all the different <laughs> magazines that work for all the different publishing houses, because that's just like the network you're going to be in. And if you don't right. care, then you're not going to know what those things are. And it was kind of a hard truth for me, but it was like, yeah, I don't care enough to know <laughs> about any of this, yeah. you know, fast forwarding way fast forward, you know, you, you put me in the position I am today and like, yeah, I'm in the realm where I care about those things and naturally know the connections and know the names and know who the people are. So like I, I ended up in the right realm, you know? Yeah. Um, so New York Not forced. Yeah. It wasn't forced. That was like a big lesson. It was a big, big lesson. Um, I feel like I'd be doing no one any favors to like leave me wondering how I survived in New York city because <laughs> the truth is that that place is insanely expensive. Yeah. And um, so yeah. that's that's one of the subtexts to all of it too. Uh, right around the end of college, I uh, I was I was deep in bicycling and uh, I was building bicycle frames. That's hmm. another tangent that we could go down. Um, <laughs> in like the 1800s methodology, I was like building wow. lugged steel frames, wow. and you that's like incredible. drill holes and pin them all together, and then freehand braze it. And then I would I would strap it to my back <laughs> and bring it to work at the cabinet shop and use their giant um, jointer as an alignment table to to, wow. to to then check the whole thing. And I'd you know hand align it, whatever, and then build that's it and, and ride it and this and that. And I was riding a lot, and uh, and I had a bad accident. I, and I had a car that pulled out of the, it was the VA hospital parking lot. I'll never forget it. It's like mm. right at the edge of Jamaica Plain where it meets uh, Boston proper mm -hmm. and uh, kind of the corner where Brookline meets all of that stuff. And yeah, this guy, I was racing down the hill and this guy pulled out in front of me and there was no time to react, no time to do nothing Ooh. except hit him. And I hit, mm. I hit the car at like 38 miles an hour. Mm. And uh, basically I, 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 uh, the bike broke in half. It, PS, it was, it was not one that I built. Oh, that's good. <laughs> um, so the one that to your credit, to my credit, the bike broke in half. I shattered my foot, had to get reconstructive oh, surgery, the whole oh, thing. Man. It was a pretty, pretty close call. Like it was, you know, I, I hit the front of the car and flew like right over the, right over the hood, right in front of mm. the windshield. You know, mm. if he had pulled six feet out further, I would have smashed just dead into the side Ooh. of the car. Mm. So Man. anyway, he screwed up. I got screwed up. I spent the better part of a year learning to walk again. And oh, I got a settlement. I had some money. So that's what I lived off of while I was in New York mm. City. Yeah. Um, it was kind of, kind of a painful experience to go through, like living off of that money in a place that I didn't want to be and all these other yeah. things. And yeah. It really gave me this like, deep town deep 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 down determination like i'm gonna find a way to make this work hmm. right and i don't care if it's illustration i understand now that like trading cash for art like doesn't work for me it doesn't it's mm -hmm. not right for me like my practice in that realm is more personal and it's more mm -hmm. uh, expressive and that's not the realm of like you know commercial art and so i said i know already that i can trade my skills working with wood or whatever else, making things for cash. It feels good. It feels right. So 
right. I decided I'd strike back in that direction. And I spent hmm. like the last of my cash on um, three Japanese chisels and a hand plane and mm. sharpening stones <laughs> and was like, nice. I'm really going to teach myself how to sharpen this. I'm really going to do it. And man, was I not right, right at the beginning. But <laughs> anyway, that was, that was sort of like what, what then sent me off in that direction. Um, after wow. the crash in 08 into 09, the girlfriend got laid off. We split. I moved back to New Hampshire, ended up back in Boston for a while and um that's when i picked up some gigs working in galleries and that really was my bread and butter for like the decade leading up to tools actually gaining traction hmm. it was sort of like getting the call um it was a, a really sweet situation um at the harvard harvard school of design which is their architecture and like urban planning school okay um, where i fell in with this guy dan borelli who runs their exhibitions department and the way the school does it is like they, they have like uh, a number of shows per year and big gaps between the shows. So say you, you've got, you know, usually 10 days to two weeks to do an install and then the show will be up for three months. And then you got 10 days to two weeks to do the next install. So you come in, you tear the old show down, you put the new shoe up, new show up. And it's really like, you know, it could be like pretty regular days, but often it was like, two weeks of 14 hour days or 20 hour days sometimes or overnights. And it's wow. just whatever it takes to get it done. But then you get three months off. Um, oh, nice. So you get hired and then laid off, you know, so you don't ever get benefits. Uh, yeah. You don't ever get anything else, but you've got employment. And if you can hoard and like, you know, not spend too much, not go out drinking, not do any of the other stuff, then, then yeah. you could like survive in this other way. Huh. And so that's how I did it. I uh, sort of, I sort of slowly ingratiated myself to that job, and and uh, was able to move off site and rent a studio space, not with like retainer or anything from them, but knowing that the work was coming, um, I was able to be an off site sort of contractor, so to speak, where I'd hear from them a month before a show was going to happen. I'd get a couple of lift supply wood delivered to me and I would cut like all of the parts for all of the pieces for the whole show. Hmm, and then I would nice. pre-assemble as many pieces as I could and then have a moving company come a couple of days before like the install would start and they would pick up all of those supplies and deliver them for me. And then I would go to the site and either facilitate like getting stuff started or sometimes work through the whole show. But often I would just do all the, all the background labor so that they wouldn't have to do that there and feed them the parts. And so they could keep sending me change orders and I'd keep making parts while they're up there working and installing. Hmm. That got me, uh, that got me through a number of years, but you know, like Boston's really, really intense for the housing market and stuff. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, my last, like my last, Oh man. And I had prided myself on being able to sort of live in anything and live anywhere <laughs> and like whatever, my last like best rent was on a three season season porch that I lived on, um, wow. you know, year round. And, uh, <laughs> it was like, uh, what was it? It was like, it was like 300 bucks a month for a so, porch. Wow. Yeah. Porch, so that was like man. really good rent at the time. Everybody else is paying like 1600. I was like, no, I, know, I can do it Boston, for 300, yes. you know? Wow. Um, but my studio, huh. the, 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 the building that I had my studio in was like the last of the last of the last holdouts 
in um, in Medford. And uh, Tufts University bought it mm. and evicted us all and Jeez. turned it into a, into a science building. Um, mm. I think it's laboratories now, which is very cool. Um, but I left the city when that happened because there was no other place to rent yeah. and ended up in New Bedford, which is a great little city on the south coast of Massachusetts. Um, mm. It's like the Portuguese capital of the United States. So it's like hmm. a very international, tiny little city that's got tons of culture. There's tons of people there from Cape Verde and there's amazing food and there's all this cool stuff. It has like more artists per capita than anywhere else in the East Coast. Interesting. But it's also Bedford. just like sort of bombed out, sort of dead, sort of. It's a really interesting place. And like all the businesses downtown are owned and run by like young people who are have like cool. just grit and want to do it. And like it was such an inspiring place to live. And that's where mm. I met my wife and she's from down there. Nice. Um, I rented a really sketchy place first. Um, amazing pricing but it was like an underground nightclub on the weekends. <laughs> and wow. there were a handful of times I came in after there were like major bloodbath fights, Ooh, like Jesus. really nasty stuff. Um, there was a big, like, uh, I guess the main heroin dealer for like Massachusetts was like two doors oh, down from me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was a sketchy scene. <laughs> There was like guys running stolen motorcycles from the end oh, of the building. And, and mind you, like Golly. to be renting in that place and to be in the <laughs> building, like everybody treated you with respect. It wasn't like dangerous for me to be there. Yeah, It was like dangerous for a stranger who didn't know anyone to be there. <laughs> sure. Like I didn't want to have a client come there. Right. Um, and obviously, I didn't know any of that when I rented it when I was moving in. It's just like, oh, here's the management company. Here's the space. Isn't it great? Yep. We don't charge you electricity. Yep. We don't charge you heat. Yep. Cool. Go <laughs> ahead. And uh, anyway, I, I moved I moved out of that place after a big, big flood. Um, I got mm. like 18 inches of water, you Ooh. know, filled the whole space. We spent the whole day like literally stripping down and diving down into the water to see Ugh. if we could find a way to get the drain unplugged. It was like a crazy nightmare. Good God. Uh, so from there, basement level, I moved to the third floor with a big freight elevator in a really nice building. And that was the nicest studio space that I had, but it was also very expensive. So hmm. that's the space where I was able to transition to making tools full time, though, hmm. um, with the sort of timing of everything and how it all worked out. The thing about the tools is that like from that entry year into mass art until now, like I never stopped making them. I was making them at all times. Mm. I was making little carving knives. I was making chisels. I was making mm. lots of hand planes um, nice. that were abject failures. You know, it wasn't <laughs> until my time in New York when I really dug down to the basics and was stuck in an apartment learning to sharpen a chisel and learning to sharpen and tune a hand plane mm. that I actually like clicked and started to build the real skills that I use now. Um, but I was using tool making as a problem solving thing. And so mm. like I was, honestly, I was laying in bed this morning thinking like, what am I going to tell these guys about like, <laughs> all the years that passed when I was like making tools, but like, don't really have anything to show for it. And it's like, it, it really, the way that those skills were being used that whole time was as, as like, a, a for making jigs and fixtures, mm. like sure. so much of the work that I was doing relied on being able to repeat a cut. Mm. Right. Repeat right. a shape. Mm -hmm. um, 
have two parts that truly match. Mm -hmm. And it didn't matter in the like dead nuts, like I measured this, it's exactly three inches realm nearly as much as it would often matter. Like if that was three inches plus a 30 second, I just need every single one to have that plus a 30 second. Yeah. So it's mm. all, and that was the methodology I was taught in that apprenticeship was always, always, always like jigs, 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 fixtures, mm. jigs and fixtures. Just try to remove inconsistencies and understand how things are going to wear as you use them so that if you're setting out to make a jig for a thousand pieces, you're going to use more durable materials and having the understanding to say like, I can shape this piece of metal. I can confirm that this piece of metal is hardenable. And then I can harden mm. it so that it can serve that purpose longer without wear. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of critical knowledge of toolmaking that I was employing and using in virtually everything that I was doing without really understanding that I was actually still working on the same stuff. Um, right. It wasn't until later that I started to build a perspective of this like all informs all. It doesn't really matter what work you're doing. You're going to turn from that work back to the thing you were doing before with new knowledge, new skills, and more extra information. And so there's really like nothing that is a waste of time. There's literally nothing. Mm -hmm. Even sweeping the floor is like a really important task to understand. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. And it's always, yeah, the problem solving thing. I think that's what remains as my main interest in toolmaking. Um, you're trying to solve someone's problems. Right. right? hopefully inside some context so that you're not just creating other problems for them. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Which is a total quagmire, but it's like um, the number of people who contact me after buying one of my Sloyd knives to say like, I have no way of sharpening it because I mm. cannot hollow grind it. And you supplied it to me fully hollow ground. Right. And I'm, and I'm like, you don't need to keep it that way. It exactly. totally doesn't matter. Right. Like whatever methods you have, you know, that, that, that you already understand those, that's the place to start. That's the place to focus. Like, mm -hmm. and that's kind of a funny push and pull when, cause I'm setting a precedent by delivering a knife in a certain way. And then you're wanting to meet that precedent and hold to it. But in context, I, I just haven't explained to you yet that like, oh no, that's just how I do it to deliver it to you. You're very free to keep it that way or to change it. Mm, right. And if there's a truth to be admitted in that same sentence, it's that uh, hollow grinding is the fastest way I can put an edge on the knife. And that's why mm, I do it right. for customers. Right. Mm -hmm. In a production realm, like there are some concessions being made to speed. And so like that's by far for me in my shop with my tooling, the fastest way I can put an edge on a knife. Hmm. it doesn't make it the best way right i find that they're easier to maintain oh they I yeah know. definitely from a, from a user's perspective i think they're much easier to maintain and, and sharpen definitely and it, i mean it takes a lot less time to sharpen obviously definitely definitely yeah. i know and it's such like a this is I, get, I think that's exactly the moment where i'm like so hinging on context where it's like um it that hollow grind is that much easier to maintain provided that you're in a realm where the medium you're grinding it on is also dead flat. Mm -hmm. And like in my, in like in my personal life, in my, sh with my shop knives, 
that I use like really hard and trash, mm-hmm. I only ever sharpen them at 400 grit and then strop. Hmm. Oh, wow. And I sharpen them 400 grit like on my knife grinder on a oh, worn geez. out belt. So it's like, <laughs> it's not a fresh 400. It's a pretty yeah, yeah, yeah. like More like soft. 650. Yeah, and maybe there's some grid in there that's like way higher, like in the thousands, you know, like it's not that blazingly fast. Right. It's just a really quick usable edge. Mm-hmm. And um and that like uh like if there's a tool that I'm obsessed with keeping flat, it's a hand plane iron. Mm. Cuz and again I'm working in the Japanese tradition there because those are the tools I have and those are the tools that I'm understanding the best. And right. there's already a hollow ground, a big hollow on the right. back of a Japanese blade. Right. And right. you don't want to put a hollow on the bevel side. It don't, mm-hmm. I don't know, all of these things are in quotations. And anyone who's listening, <laughs> anything that I say, still in quotations. Because <laughs> no matter what I say, no matter what I do, someone out there is doing it the opposite and getting great results. And it's right. the results that actually matter. So not, right. yeah, uh, exactly. nothing else actually matters. Even if the thing is pretty as all get out, it yeah. doesn't matter for snot if it doesn't cut like hell. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, like the whole realm of keeping things flat and with sharpening, it is such a contextual nightmare mm-hmm. because like you get hit up by one person who's like, do you sharpen on water stones or do you sharpen on sandpaper? And I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> it doesn't matter either That's funny. as long do as it's it. flat. And right. when somebody's like, well, I only have sharpening, I only have stones, will it work? I'm like, yes, if they're flat. <laughs> it's always going to cycle back to the same answer. Is it flat? flat. Yeah. Is it flat? And is the grit clogged or still cutting? Because nothing else really matters. It does right. not matter if it's sandpaper. It does not matter if it's stone. Yeah. You can have all sorts of personal attitudes about this sort of stuff and say, well, I don't want to be wasteful. I don't like that sandpaper has resin resin bonding the grit to the thing. I, I, I don't right. like that the Indonesia like rhino wet papers are like, it's not even paper. That's like literally a piece of vellum, like resin vellum. Yeah. Like, this is plastic. Right. I don't want to throw right. this away. This is sure. bull. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, then get yourself stones, but don't forget yeah. that most of the stones are still like ceramic. They're still man-made. It's still a mm-hmm. wild industrial process. Right. Okay, so let's get natural stones. All right, well, the best natural stones in the world, good luck finding out where they are because everyone's got a different opinion. You know, right. and like you want to get in, for them. Oh my gosh. You get into Japanese natural stones and you need $5,000 to put together a kit to get from rough Oof. grinding to Certainly. finish. Wow. Certainly, yeah. Minimum, yeah. minimum. Certainly. Wow. And again, in quotations, because I'm not an absolute expert in that realm. I follow right. some folks who do lots of natural stone stuff, especially huh. with Japanese stones. And I mean, I would love, 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 love to be getting those results. And yeah. I simply can't afford it. I mean, it's outrageous. Yeah. It's um, way too expensive. But then there's like uh, noviculite, you know, the Arkansas stones. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you really dig into the nitty gritty, uh, the biggest place that exported Arkansas stones go to is Japan, to the cutlery, cutlery industry, hmm. where right. they're using the crap out of American oil stones because they're really, really fine. They're hmm. really, really good stones. So, you know, there's like always marketing involved. There's always like, (laughs) there's always lots of layers to this going on. I mean, even, even trade names for steels, like forget about it. You're talking about like 
you know, eight big industrialized countries who are like in competition with each other, they're mm -hmm. all making the same steels, but they're all using different trade names. Hmm. Right. And Interesting. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. You know, like I, if I say I'm using 52100, then mm. everyone in Europe is like, yeah, so which one? Because there's <laughs> actually six of them. Right. And which grade is it? Because, you know, 1.3505 is actually way better than 1.3505 or 535 <laughs> or whatever, you know, the, the numerical denominators. My head starts to spin. Yeah, yeah, your head starts to spin, but it all just right. re it refers to the alloying elements. And most of that science was done, you know, in the 1800s, like quite literally. 52100 bearing steel was invented in like, like 1895. Wow. Mm. Huh. It's been around ever since then. I had and no idea. They've yeah. had like the heat treat schedules closely guarded as an industry secret that you could only get your hands on if you pony up 10 grand and buy the key of steels, Ooh, which is literally a spiral, spiral bound book that has oh, like okay. all of the information for yeah. every single way to treat every single steel that's used in industry. That's incredible, man. So it's, a, it's a highly, highly guarded. Um... Yeah, it can be field. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And again, I think it spins back to exactly what I said in the beginning, because like, uh, honestly, the knowledge, it's like, not that complicated. Yeah, right? yeah. Right. And a lot of it's kept. And again, I've, I'm using enormous quotations around that. <laughs> because it's actually like literally rocket science, like it's wicked complicated. Yeah, yeah. but it's Industry known, and, it's known. Yeah. And it's been understood for like a freaking long time. Right. And right. It's one of the many barriers that's held. Like Abana is the Artist Blacksmiths Association. Um, mm -hmm. And okay. I have plenty of respect. I have tons of respect for all of the different blacksmithing associations, different craft, craft associations. I am not looking to piss on anybody's parade. But <laughs> I have a problem with like having to pony up cash and have to pay monthly dues in order to be able to have the opportunity to buy the ABA, like the American bladesmithing manual. Mm. There is a book that instructs how to do it, but you don't get it unless you like buy into like admittedly a rather like good old boy, like pretty like inequitable um, mm. organization. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a wacky thing. And I, yeah. I guess I've, I've allowed myself to stay independent from all of that stuff, but I've watched good. real good friends of mine have gone deep, deep, deep. And there's really good reasons to go deep. Like my buddy mirrors makes, um, you know, folding knives and it would be in the art knife realm. Um, but it's not unheard of for his knives to go for 25, $30,000. That's incredible. But you don't get to do that unless you have the credentials of actually being members of these associations and like having, he has a, he has a master Smith stamp that when he stamps that into a piece of steel, like that carries real weight, hmm. just like a CV, you know, like a, a resume. Yeah, yeah. Like this is evidence to you that I have endured an incredibly rigorous process right. of being trained and tested. Right. And it's that testing. I think part of the reason you guard and then make people join and then make people test is that, uh, you know, practice is what makes the skill, the skills usable. Mm -hmm. And so you're trying to limit the number of people that you hand the information to who are not going to go and practice it. They're just going right. to turn around and claim mastery and do whatever. Yeah. 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 But I have some, I have some conflict with that. Really. Well, it's, it's interesting to your earlier point, Reed, about how, you know, 
Okay, so say you pony up all the money, you get all the trade secrets. If you don't have the practice and skill, it doesn't mean squat. Right. Yeah, I mean, what's knowledge sitting on the shelf if you don't know how to use it? Totally. I mean, and this is where we'll cycle back again, tangent style to the, the context, right? I've spent an enormous amount of time reaching the point where I could heat treat by eye in live fire. But wow. if you're smart, <laughs> you'd buy a kiln right. and you'd be doing that day one without having to practice at all. So you're telling us you don't have a kiln? I do not have a kiln. That's incredible. Wow. <laughs> I actually have a kiln on order. I'm waiting for one to show up. <laughs> and thanks for, <laughs> thanks for, you know, to coronavirus and other things, that's, that's massively delayed. And I, it took me a freaking long time to reach the point where I was like, you know what? That's not a cop-out. Right. That's an insurance policy. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And beyond that, it's, uh, it's uh, um, buying into efficiency Mm-hmm. hopefully mm-hmm. not false efficiency where I'm sitting here like, oh, it's easy once you have a kiln. But understanding <laughs> right. that like, mm-hmm. no, there's a learning curve and it, it kilns take a long time to heat up and my, my fire does not take a long time to heat up and all right. these kinds of stuff. But um, so there was no reason that I needed to take, let's see, when was it that I learned um, knife making like in a basic way it was like 2002. So it's 2021. That's a lot of time mm. to pass. Yeah. Two of only about five years ago reached the point of aptitude where I could like feel good about selling because every one of my huh. blades was passing the tests. Wow. Um, and that's, that's like, amazing. that's an important yeah. thing to, to remember um, is that since we're talking about consistency and it's something that like, the only way to really know is to snap the blade off and inspect what's going on inside. <laughs> you don't get to do that to every knife you sell to somebody. But so how do you no. guarantee? <laughs> how do you sleep at night? How do right. you sleep at night when you send those things out? Hmm. Right. Good point. Right. Yeah. You've got yeah, to have sense. tests. That makes sense. You've yeah, got to have sense. a methodology that you're really careful about following. You've right. got to be uh, like incessant about mm. making sure that you did it the same every time. Mm. Right. And I mean to the point of obsession. Mm-hmm. And um, again, like my that's what I mean about context. Like my interest was in trying to understand something old. My interest was in trying to unlock some of the knowledge that was just like fluent for people 200 years ago or however long ago you want to say it was. But like the things that called me to tool making were not the high end things that were being made today. They were always the things that were in museums or that were represented by like the material culture of, um, generally people who lived in like harsh environments and very close to nature Mm. it has always been you know sort of the the objects that called and i i've like allowed myself to talk about it that way a number a number of times and then sort of shied back away from it again but the truth is like it is a calling like if i step Mm. into a hall of swords it's almost deafening (laughs) yeah they just scream at me wow and when I see, you know, oh gosh, I mean, it's the stuff that I'm more attuned to now, like native stuff, Indian tools, things from the mm-hmm. material culture that was from here, um, mm-hmm. from the woods where I'm from, and yeah. the way that people lived here in fluency with like such a complex environment. Um, that is the knowledge that I think is available to us um, through those old objects, but right. only through understanding like the concept of the world that that person lived in. 
mm-hmm. you know, and that's something that I think is immeasurably difficult for us today. Like one of my favorite examples is in, um, I, I, I have like a lot of interest in genealogy and these sorts of mm-hmm. things and um, interest in where my family came from and all the different things that go into it. And like a real big chunk is Russian. And I have mm. a lot of interest in the Russian spoon carving because it, it doesn't take much looking in that direction to realize how outrageous it was in the Middle Ages. Mm. I mean, <laughs> you've got like thousands of peasants right. that were producing millions of spoons right. that were getting pushed through uh, a handful of merchants and they were furnishing <laughs> the spoon market of the entire Persian Empire. That's, wow. a, that's crazy. <laughs> it was literally Insane. like 10 million spoons a year were coming out Holy of the Novgorod crap. region. You know? What? And yeah. I can't ignore the idea that like those people knew what the hell the tools should look like. Right. And hmm. they knew what shape they should be and um, had a working methodology that would be very direct and free from frivolity hmm. because you got to get the work done. Right. Like I just watched this. Uh, uh, I've had some contact with hmm. a, a Canadian guy who's connected to the, uh, I'm going to butcher it, but the, uh, is it the Dukelbors? There's a, uh, a, a Christian religious sect of Russians who were like anti-war and they refused to fight in the Tsar's army and they did this mm. big protest where they burned their guns and mm. they were going to get locked up in the gulag. And one of the big Russian authors, I forget which one it was, but it might have been like Dostoevsky, he like funded their removal and, uh, and, and moving them to Canada. He got them out of Russia before they like mm. excommunicated mm. them. <laughs> And they were ladle carvers. They were spoon carvers. That's what they did. And so they came over to Canada and they landed, they put them off in some like way, way out in the middle. I think it's Ontario, but like to the West. Yeah. And uh, they were like, this is useless land. Go out there. And they (laughs) kind of expected them to just like wither and die. Mm -hmm. But these people had like a really strong um, understanding of the boreal forest and where they mm. landed happened to have like just about the same flora same fauna they knew how to make medicine they knew how to harvest wood they're like oh i know what this is like oh we're back home so yeah. they thrived they did really yeah. well yeah. and uh uh so somebody sent me this little video uh of from the 70s of one of these guys carving a ladle like as an example for canadian tv like it was this really mm-hmm. bizarre little thing and uh you know he barely used an axe wow he what? worked from the round and he mm-hmm. used an axe to split it and he used an axe to like <clears throat> true up the split face. <clears throat> and then he used an axe to like make it sort of a, a rectilinear billet. Like he took the other half of the round log away. So now it's like a billet. Yeah. And then he stuck it in a vice and he drew what he wanted in plain, you know, plain view, like straight onto it. Yeah. And uh, he had this beautiful, um, like a, uh, 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 a frame style coping saw homemade, mm-hmm. you know, with like mm-hmm. a pretty long, probably a 20 or 22 inch long blade. And he just very deftly and very effortlessly and quickly <laughs> sawed the circumference of the spoon mm. out. Wow. Which left him with a straight blank, you know, mm. with now the edges cut out, but there's no crank in it. Mm. And he took it back to the chopping block as already a spoon shape and he chopped crank in. Mm-hmm. and chopped off the back and he roughed out the inside of the spoon with a gouge 
And then he's like, now I'll let it dry for four months before I finish carving it. Wow. That's and incredible. I'll finish carving it with four months, which is crazy, right? We know yeah. that you don't need to do that. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh-huh. he used uh, rasps and like a whole suite of tools. And he had a, a Russian knife, a spoon knife that looks like the ones that I've seen from the medieval examples. But huh. even just watching him saw out the circumference of the spoon was just like, Oh, that feels good to watch. And, <laughs> yeah, it, I, and he almost like winks at the camera. He's like, yeah, no splits. Yeah. Check, <laughs> check this one out. You're like, yeah, I, I get it. it. You didn't ax down that handle towards the bowl and tap the edge of the bowl. Yeah. So we've you, done, we've you all done that. Yeah, we've all done that. You're, you're almost done with the spoon and the crack shows up. Hell, oh. I, I, like a week ago, I went through a, a bout of five spoons in a row. Oh, every geez, time I, I got them like almost to totally finish and then the crack would oh, show up man. and it's like that. oh into the fire <laughs> it, admittedly i've had a long run without having one crack so it was like it was due yeah you know yeah the, yeah. Cr- the crack gods yeah the, the crack, crack gods God. are like you you owe me man <laughs> yeah man for every spoon you do you the owe tree me five. gods <laughs> yeah 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 uh, that's cool yeah that's amazing i those videos have always been so fascinating to me just to see that and then reading, um, I'm reading uh, Woodworking in Estonia right now. Oh, I want that book so bad. Oh my God, it's, it is incredible. And it talks about a lot of these, uh, these concepts that you're um, speaking on, like oh. this embedded knowledge that is so common to them that it's almost mundane. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right. And it's, uh, an, it's amazing. And there's a, there's a lot of, I'd like to get the link for that video you're describing because I've seen a lot of Swedish, uh, there's a handful of Swedish spoon carvers. And then, um, I learned a trick from a buddy. If you go on YouTube and you search in the language of the region you're trying to find. That's what uh, I'm talking about. I learned that not too long ago too. Yeah. And I've seen some videos like from Italy and a couple other regions, but, um, just watching these people that like that, that's just part of their life. It wasn't like, I'm going to get into spoon carving. It was just that's what they knew and it's mm-hmm. just so insane to see i can't even describe it it's just this inherent knowing that's not it's just part of their life totally. their heritage and you know their father probably did it their grandfather right. probably did it totally so on and so on totally yeah. well and i know that that's something that we like fetishize a lot too right because mm-hmm. we, we all feel like we're sort of missing out on that but and yeah I, and it's like um it's like this missing link that if we could just like reinstall that little piece of software, you know, to not, I can't escape like a digital reference there, but it's like, if we could just reinstall that, then it's like, it fills this hole. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So, you know, obviously that's like a big motivator for me too. Yeah. The last two years I've been like slowly in the background trying to like recreate these Russian tools that Mm. I am watching these people use. Um, and from the beginning, like, um, in my toolmaking journey, like super early on, you know, like, and this is where I have to pause on a tangent and just say like <laughs> Tim Manny, you guys, okay. know, you guys oh, know yeah. Tim Manny? Yeah. Know who yeah. Tim Manny is? I know. Yes, 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 yes. Tim Manny is, uh, oh, I love that man. He is <laughs> a real genuine, like good person, sweetheart, um, who like threw the door open for me in terms nice. of like making me feel welcome um, in the realm of, of tool making, in the realm of like being a professional, like individual craftsperson. Hmm. And um, he really just like uh, absolutely floored me and like 
um, really changed my life by being just really generous and friendly and like normal, um, <laughs> which is, it's crazy to say that that was, you know, but it, it's anyway. So Tim helped like really make me feel welcome. And, uh, and uh, I guess I tangented pretty good because I forget where I was going with that. <laughs> I, I don't remember your tool, your tool journey my tool journey yeah you started the same the russian the russian the russian carving tools, tools. Yeah. that's what it was yeah and i i knew i was gonna get back to that and I, <laughs> you're gonna have to edit here for a minute aren't you that's you all right to edit no. this part back out no, no, no well editing. it's like um yeah i totally lost my train of thought there was a really good reason for me to say that based on where I was coming from with the other stuff. It, it felt clever at the time, but now it feels less. So, um, yeah, so I've spent the last few years working on these like Russian knives, trying to hmm. understand them. And yep, totally lost that train of thought, guys. Why don't you get me restarted? <laughs> so uh, before we go there, actually, there's a couple things I thought of. Um, mm -hmm. I think when I first learned about you, it was through Jared Dahl. Um, uh -huh. And he had mentioned your work with making the Native American knives. Um, sure. I always forget the name of those. Uh, I just call them a crooked knife. A crooked oh, knife. Yeah, the yeah, there we go. Knives, yeah. 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 And uh, and referencing that you were like one of the few people he knew of that had been making those and mm -hmm. uh, and also been working on birch bark uh, canoes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How, so I'm curious how that fit in. Did and, and what kind of tools did you start making? You, I mean, you mentioned knives, but was it? Was Sloyd a part of your? I did not know what Sloyd was until yeah. probably about six years ago, six seven years okay. ago. Okay, yeah, yeah. Huh. I didn't know the term like Sloyd, right? Um, I bought my first Sloyd knife without understanding what it was while I was in college, um, mm. and it actually was a source of inspiration for me to try to make more of them. Um, but initially, yeah, when I got into making tools, I really wanted to make chisels and plane irons. And I, okay. I had fallen in love with like the Japanese end of things, Japanese woodworking. And I'm trying to remember exactly oh. how I got exposed to that. And I'm, I'm positive that it has to do with this sculptor um, who lives across the valley from me, who I worked for in high school. Okay. Um, he has like this really, really wild, really great way of looking at the world. And he was like the first person to introduce me to um like zen buddhism not the dogma or anything mm -hmm. but like the the um really down low like willingness to listen mm -hmm. to objects to nature to the seasons uh, to the generations, you know, he, he was the kind of person like planting trees that he would never get to sit under, understanding mm. that he had thought about what kind of shade it was going to make for the person who did. Mm. And that's just like a really interesting way of working at the world. And I, I know that he gave me, uh, when I left and went to college, he gave me a, a, a book by Suzuki and it's, he is a, he is a Zen, um, a Zen practitioner. And mm -hmm. it's like this, uh, this book about the beginner's mind. And I think the philosophy infected me first and going to Boston, they have, they actually at the, at the, um, it's the museum of fine arts. They have the largest, get this, they have the largest collection of Japanese art in the world, hmm. wow. including Japan. What? That's huh. crazy. There's more 
Japanese artifacts stored in their facility than there is in Japan. That's wild. How did Japan allow that? <laughs> Imperialism. This was like post World yeah, yeah. War II stuff. This was right. like oh, yeah, early yeah. The in plunder. The, this goes mm. all the way back to like the Dutch India Trading Company. It's theft. Mm. It's like you yeah. name it. It they yeah. have it. Yeah. They have yeah, it. Right. Yeah. So I was looking at um, collections of stuff there, and they have several pieces by by George Nakashima, who you guys might know. He's like big deal American furniture builder. Mm -hmm. um, Don't know him. You guys, look him up. He is like the guy who originally did like uh, live edge slab stuff. Hmm. And, oh, cool. and, uh, but in like, in like an amazing way. Um, <laughs> so, so, uh, yeah, I, I, it's like a little bit unclear to me, like how I, I landed so squarely on that stuff. And then again, I mean, I'll, I'll open up about this because he asked. And like the truth is that I am a, 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 a European person of European descent who has a little bit of Native American blood. Okay. Um, on my mom's side of the family, there's a little bit of Navajo. And I learned hmm. about it right around when my wife and I got married. Um, and I had gotten a secondhand ring that I was gonna use um, as my wedding ring. And it's a vintage piece from out west. It's It could be Navajo, it could be a, a number of other things too. And so she brought it up and like told me the story. And it was not something that was told in our familial story before. And so it was like kind of a big shock and it was kind of a big event. And it was like, um, it was um, right around the same time that I had been exposed to birch bark and birch bark canoes. Hmm. And, um, it, and when I say exposed, like exposed in my adult life with my full awareness and ability to be as excited as I could be. Yeah. yeah. Um, Cause I, I knew about it growing up and like had some friends growing up who were Abenaki and their family worked with bark. And uh, there's still, if I walk up the hill here way up into the woods um, that's where their old family camp is. And mm. the birch trees all are regrown bark. Like it's kind <laughs> of amazing. It's bark that was peeled like when I was a little kid. Oh, that's and cool. uh, so it all catalyzed into this like really, really, really intense passion um, that I felt extremely strongly about, like, like all of these callings were, were like trying to just bring me the knowledge and the things that I needed so that when that piece fell into place, I would just like go in. And that's sort of what happened to me. And mm. like it, it, uh, it, it happened. So there's this film Caesar's Canoe. If you're listening, finish we listening are. and then go and watch the <laughs> film. It's you can watch it for free. It's on the Canadian National Film Board. Um, they sell a version of it that's high def. I recommend it because you can see the tools better. You can see the stuff mm. better. It's about an hour long. Um, it was produced in the 70s. And there's this amazing guy, Caesar. Uh, and he builds a canoe and it's like this almost deadpan, almost like, uh, there's, um, there's slides that tell you like what the next sequence is going to be, but there's nobody talking. Hmm. There's no like white guy over explaining what he's doing and getting it wrong. It's just like him working and he builds this boat. And at the end, him and him and his partner go in the boat and they go paddle way out into the lake and they're pulling like the, the fishing net out of the lake, you know, and mm. putting the fish in the boat. And it was like a sea change. There was no going back after I saw that. 
uh, about a week after that, I had my first crooked knife and boy, was it a failure. It was just horrendous. <laughs> um, but I was going to try. And it was like that same th- stick to of like, I don't care how many times, I don't care how much I hurt myself, I don't care what's going to happen, I'm going to make this happen. And, uh, you know, we were living in New Bedford at the time, and I was, like, taking the dog for secret walks out into the state park where there was the only stand of cedar trees and, Mm. like, waiting for nobody to be around and cutting one down (laughs) (laughs) and then dragging it to the car and waiting for cars to, like, drive by and then shoving it in the back of the car and driving home and splitting it open and trying to carve a paddle with it and, like, it was really intense. I, I like <laughs> Mike, Mike is shaking his head right now. Cause he's a park ranger. He's like, mm. this was bad news. Mike. <laughs> I'm telling you it was bad. It was a necessary trespass, which is a term that I've learned about since <laughs> I shouldn't tell you about my Adelaide period in college. Cause I went to the Arnold Arboretum and was harvesting their red osier dogwood to make the spears. <laughs> riding the bus back with like fresh cut stuff That's from the hilarious. Arboretum. And they're like, what are you doing? I'm like I found it on the side of the road. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, Later on my Shakuhachi phase where I was harvesting um, bamboo from, from the Arnold Arboretum in Boston because I hadn't found a place in New York to harvest it from yet. Oh my gosh. That's great. Um, Yeah. I've always been a bit of a bastard about that kind of stuff Um, (laughs) and lucky to be so like white passing and everything else and like just sort of get away with it because I've been caught red handed doing things I should not have done and got away with it. Um, so, uh, so yeah, the, the, the birch bark canoes, um, a few weeks in after seeing Caesar's canoe, I'd probably watched it 10 times. Cause I was like going home and watching it every night. And, um, I was working in a boatyard at the time. Uh, I had a gig on, uh, helping to restore an old sailboat. So I was tasked with tearing the old engine out, installing a new engine, uh, new stuffing boxes. We did a dripless system. We did all this stuff. It was, it was a pretty wild scene. Um, but it was a big fiberglass boat. So I was kind of like obsessing over birch bark canoes and mm. working on this fiberglass boat, you know, having to put on the whole hazmat suit and everything to do fiberglass mm. and epoxy layups in the middle of the Oof. summer. It's like miserable, yeah. miserable, miserable, great work. I loved the guy I was working for. Um, this man, Ed, he was another, I have lucked out over and over in being exposed to people who support me with like knowledge and, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of good people out there. Um, there is. And, and when you work with your hands and try to work hard and are on this path, like you'll, people will be generous to you at times. Mm, yeah. And that's like such a gift. Mm-hmm. So um, he, I think, was the one who was like, oh, you know, with all this birch bark canoe stuff, did you notice this? There was a talk that was coming up at the Peabody Essex Museum. Um, and they have in their collection some amazing birch bark canoes. Um, one of which is on display, but most of them are in storage. And so this birch bark canoe builder from up in Maine, um, David Moses Bridges, he was going to, he was doing a talk and uh, it was on a weeknight. It was a nightmare. It was hard to get there, the whole thing. But my wife and I went up there and had like a big blowout fight afterward. Cause it was like nine o'clock at night and we couldn't find a place to eat dinner, but we went, <laughs> we went to this talk and, uh, and met David Moses Bridges. And um, I struck up a correspondence with him. Uh, that went on for about six months or so, very infrequent, but we were we were writing back and forth to each other and he was sharing a little bit of the knowledge like um, to help me peel bark and dig root. And uh, our correspondence kind of fell off uh, because he, he got 
cancer he got sick and then he died like so mm. soon after which is mm. just like a heartbreaking thing mm. a major loss um he was a majorly majorly uh generous and just like just imminently skilled uh and connected to old stories and stuff so it was just like majorly influential for me you know and like i'll never get away from that kind of corner of things where like there's this little bit of native blood but um you don't really get to claim that because you mm -hmm. don't know anything about the culture and like it's way more important to be called called on called called by the culture like named as such and if you're not then you are not and so it's like i'll never escape the desire to like be close to people who are connected and to like carry try to keep the flame at least like keep some mm. of the skills alive or to try to gain some of those skills in order to like try to keep them alive uh and so 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 david moses bridges his talk like sent me off the deep end and he gave me a little bit of encouragement and again i was back out in the state park and i managed to peel enough birch bark and get enough Caesar, cedar and just enough of the right stuff to build a tiny boat. And mm, it was like nice. the shape of a skiff. It's not the shape of a canoe. It's horrendous, <laughs> but it floats, it holds water. Yeah. And yeah. it was enough like to take all of this information that had kind of like been dumped on me and just try to like process it, process it into a physical form where I could then refer to the form as uh, mm. uh, a way to remember the, the steps. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I knew that it was going to be mandatory for me to build one, and it still is, uh, to build a full-size one at some mm. point. Um, but so far, I've built uh, five of them, um, and they're all models, and the biggest one mm. is about five feet long. Mm. Um, That's so a nice. cool way to do it. That is a cool model. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's an outrageous process. So like one of the sure. first things that I realized was um, that, uh, well, the boats are built inside out, right? They're in in mm. the West... Like generally speaking, and this is not true for everything, right? Those same giant ex those those quotations on either side, like don't take what I'm saying as gospel. <laughs> but like generally in the West, you build a boat um, on a form of some kind. Uh -huh. um, there's plenty of traditions that I know of, like uh, dory building, for instance, where you use the building as a jig and there's no actual form. Um, but often. And like canoe building today, like the way that uh, cedar and canvas canoes are built, the, the canoes that we all know, um, you have a plug, you have the mold, you have, there's a bunch of words mm. to call it, but you've got the shape of the inside of the canoe. You bend the ribs over the shape, and then you put planks over the ribs and you fasten it all together. Mm. So the ribs and the planking are rigidly held together in the shape of a canoe, and you take it off the mold, you flip it over and put the stems in, finish up the ends of the boat, and then wrap the outside in canvas and paint it, finish it, fill it, all the other mm. things. That's a little out of order, but you get the point. Um, mm -hmm. So with, with Indian-style canoe building, whether it's a canvas skin, a bark skin, uh, or, I mean, there's, there's other skins too. Mm -hmm. um, and this is for canoes, not kayaks, because kayak, kayak building is different. But canoes, you, mm -hmm. you start with the skin first. So the bark gets laid out and um, on the place where you're going to build the boat and you're building the boat on the ground usually or on a, on a surface of some kind where you're going to support the bark. And uh, <clears throat> you, put, you put a form, but it's really just the, the top-down shape of the canoe. It's two sticks that have been bent. They're fastened at either end and then you put sticks in between to bend them out and make mm -hmm. basically the outline of the boat. You place that on the bark and stack rocks on it, 
and then you 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 make the bark supple by some means, whether it's hot water or a hot air gun or whatever. There's a bunch of different ways to do it. Hmm. Um, you fold the bark very concisely, consistently and concisely against that frame into like a vertical sided flat bottomed like totally static um envelope for lack of a better word it it mm -hmm. looks like an envelope you'd put a, a letter in and mail mm -hmm. it out and um from there you start attaching the frames and the first frame that goes in are the long ones um which we call gunnels in the west gunwales um i wish mm -hmm. that i had command over language because there's obviously Native American terms for all of this stuff. Gunwales comes from gunships and that term only really comes up once you are mounting like large guns on boats for the sake of battle. So mm -hmm. there were already terms for gunwales before then, but we don't know what they were right now anyway, because that's the nomenclature within the work. So the gunnels go in first and uh, that sets kind of the overall depth of the boat and the shape of the shear. But there's no, there's nothing else in there. There's just slack bark. And uh, so the, the gunnels get attached and um, you know, there's all sorts of interim steps depending on the size bark you have. Sometimes you get bark big enough to do the whole boat in one sheet, but mm. usually you're sewing, it, sewing multiple pieces together to make that envelope. So all of that work is getting done at the same time. Once you fix those top frames, um, and again, there's different takes on it but you you'll attach stems next and essentially once the stems and gunwales are in you have a, a boat that is now sort of fixed in its volume but is lacking it the rest of its structure and at that point you can take all the rocks out and you have this really light really sort of floppy thing <laughs> um, and the bark for canoes is heavy so floppy is in relative terms like if you press on it it's flexible you know, but it's not flopping around like uh, a wet blanket or something. Mm -hmm. um, but only at that point do you start applying the ribs and the planking. And the really amazing thing is that the ribs, um, well, to begin with, you're, you're bending them usually by eye, or often you'll use the inside of the boat to bend them. So mm -hmm. they're, they're made to fit the actual shape that's there. And that means that when you're actually laying out the boat on the ground, you can make it asymmetrical. You can make it have more volume behind the center point or in front of the center point. And there's all kinds of reasons to do things like that. You mm. also have control over the shape of the bottom boat. You can take it, you can make it flat along the bottom or you can make it have rocker. So the, the boat is curved along the bottom so it'll turn better and all sorts of other things. So mm. you're really, you're holding the shape of the boat in your mind more than anything else when you bend the ribs and when you're setting all that stuff up. Mm. But the ribs, when they go in, they're actually cut oversized they're too long to fit into the boat and you put them in at an angle and tip the ends up under the gunwales and then you have to hammer them in place and they actually since they're too long they put a tremendous amount of tension onto the bark they push out ah. and they push down and so this thing that has like straight sides with a 90 degree bottom and a flat bottom on it Mind you, you, you got to wet the bark, you got to use hot water because this is a lot of pressure that goes in. And often you'll knock those in over the course of a couple of days. Mm -hmm. But the planking's just placed inside. The ribs are oversized and forced in, and there is no fasteners holding any of the mm. ribs or any of the planking. Oh, wow. wow. And that means that the whole hull, the whole surface of that boat and all of the components have the ability to flex and slide on each other. So when that boat comes in contact 
hopefully it doesn't, but if you were to go careening into like a submerged log, Mm-hmm. the ribs would flex and slide and things would just mm. sort of move around where it's really known with like cedar and canvas canoes they're brittle and it's because all those planks are fixed with nails mm. to all those ribs right. and there's nowhere for things to slide there's not really that much movement that can take place before things crack hmm. and so the added benefit too is you know again contextually you're talking about people who consider home very vast areas um, yeah. You now have a boat that you can repair anywhere because hmm. if you did crack a rib, it's not nailed in. You don't need to take the skin off to take the nails off to take the rib off. Hmm. You just tap the rib out. You go find yourself if you're, if, if you're not anywhere near desirable you know, timber and don't have the time to like cut down a whole tree to split out to recreate the rib from the original material. You could always just cut a sapling and fashion a rib out of it and hammer it in to get you where you're going. The point is that it's repairable in the moment in the field. Hmm. And all the materials that go into it are, you know, they're, they're findable no matter where you go. Yeah. Unless you're in central Virginia where there's no white birch. Right, 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 right. (laughs) Well, and down that way, from my understanding, there would have been a lot more dugout canoes and, um, and birches were around a long time ago, but they were a lot smaller so I've seen like um, I'm not that familiar with Virginia in 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 the larger sense for canoes, but I know about like Chesapeake Bay area. They had like these really wild little they were little um, almost kayak form canoes mm. that had like um, decked ends and they sat really low in the water. And uh, they're they're honestly they're really beautiful. Actually, Plymouth Craft has some like some neat stuff about about some of that. Um, mm. I forget where that was. Paula was showing it to me, though. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, the, the 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 boats and the variety of ways to make them, I mean, that's turned into like a pretty epic obsession on my part. <laughs> um, same with like pursuing that whole thread of like, where does that little bit of, you know, of Native American in my family history, where does that lead me for tool shapes? Where does that lead me for boats? Where does that lead me for all that stuff? And like, I don't know. It's hard. It's pretty hard to penetrate it all. Because it's mm. not that well documented, right? Yeah, yeah. You know? And you, you like you read about the Diné, which is the Navajo, and then you read about the Dene, which is the people they came from, and that's like Athabascan area, and so that is like a little bit more of a classifiable thing for crooked knives and for boats. Hmm. Um, but again, it's like how do you how do you draw those correlations, and how do you how do you move um, working with these. Th- things that are actually like really important parts of other people's cultures that maybe there's a piece of that in me, but it's not who I am. It's not what I, I don't come from that. So like, how do you, how do you make those moves? How do you, how do you like sell or use those things? And mm-hmm. also like first do no harm. Mm-hmm. It's a quagmire. I mean, I have not fully navigated it yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you obviously make tools that are incredibly useful and people are getting a lot of um, use out of them. And they're, you know, I, I've never used one of your tools, but <laughs> Me either. Uh, based on what <laughs> I see, high, high in demand, high in demand, <laughs> based on what I see, they, uh, they look like they perform incredibly well. Yeah. And I, I mean, all the scabbards and the sheaths and all the other stuff that come along with your tools, that thing is just incredibly beautiful. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, and that's, that stuff I, I, it must be, I wish, uh, I wish my wife could pop in and like tell you a little bit more about what it's like 
to be like in a partnership with somebody like me <laughs> who has a lot of obsessions <laughs> who has like obsessions that are like so overlapped and so impossible to like ever really get a straight answer about or like this morning I think I went about on a 45 minute lecture about like the intimate issues I'm having getting exactly the kind of sheen that I'm looking for on this particular knife handle because <laughs> I forgot exactly what to scuff my tongue oil with in between coats oh wow and I'm trying to remember was it the felt or was it this little scuffer pad because huh. I have another knife sitting here that I got a really nice sheen it's like this it's not quite satin and it's not quite gloss. Huh. It's just right. And I just, I just <laughs> want it again, but I can't, I can't get it. And like, I mean, yeah, my wife had to sit here this morning for like 45 minutes <laughs> being like, uh -huh, wife. Asking, wife. asking polite questions and like, yeah, yeah no, I, it, it's obsessive. Yeah. That's nice. So yeah. uh, w right now with your, with your tool making, what is like, what are you making the most of right now? And, um, I guess I'm not really familiar with how people uh -huh. are you doing batches or are you doing like, this is a great or? question. This is a great question. Um, and, and, uh, this is a chance for me to actually air what's been going on. Um, I opened up to take some orders a few years ago, a couple of, mm -hmm. well, not a few years ago. Uh, it was, I guess it was end of 2019 okay. mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. I opened up to take some orders. I have always just done batches and as a, like, I, we already went through the whole diatribe working cabinet shops, gallery work, all the other stuff. Um, really the only way I've ever made money is production work. And mm -hmm. so that was like 100% where I went with the tools and was just like, I will do batches. I will not take orders. I will do timed releases. Right. And it was wonderful in the sense that it worked. And I will, f I still like, honestly, guys, I, it still has not worn out the thrill of making something and actually selling it. Mm. Yeah, certainly. It, I, for, I feel like forever I'm going to be floored by every single person who buys something. <laughs> and awesome. so I have this like great sense of gratitude and this great sense of like thankfulness and luck in being able to like do what I do. Mm -hmm. um, but when it was like really selling out fast and like more and more people were interested I was getting a lot of angry emails from people who missed out. Mm -hmm. And I could observe how inequitable it was because every single release, like the bulk of the tools would go to cities. Hmm. Oh. And it's just because they have faster hmm. internet access. That's true. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, That's all I, can it relate. Was. I can relate to this. That's not fair. I know. Yeah, that's and not fair. and so I didn't feel good about it, and I'm like, I don't know how to handle this, you know. And and for yeah. months and months and months, really for years, my wife and I would just like, we would spitball ideas, we would try gaming out things, we'd try to run the numbers on things, and it's like, mm -hmm. I don't know, you got 1,700 people roughly who are competing to get things, which is mm. like shocking, wow. shocking, that's amazing. That is pretty cool, though. How am I ever gonna serve that many people? Right. Like the buying, huh. the, the pool of people trying to buy, like we're still talking about a handmade thing. I don't have a power hammer. I don't, right. I don't even right. have a kiln. I have right. my one knife grinder, which I spent the big bucks on. And like yep. my whole independent professional career of making things, I have disbelieved in debt. So I've hoarded and bought tools. Nice. Yeah, so like the last really big money buys purchase was, was the knife grinder. It was like almost five mm. grand. 
Mm. And, wow. and which one do you get? Um, I have a Radius Master, which is like okay. an odd thing too. It's not even yeah. like it runs. Uh, uh, it runs the two inch by uh, forty eight inch belts, mm-hmm. so they're half the length of a normal knife grinder's belt, and uh, and so they they do wear out a little faster. But but the sweet thing about the Radius Master is that it has these like um, on the corners where the um, the idle wheels are that the mm-hmm. belt runs on. There are little right. spindles and you can spin it and it has a bunch of different sizes. Yes. So yes. if I need I a slightly about, yeah. bigger radius, I can grind on a bigger wheel. And if I need a smaller mm-hmm. radius, I can grind on a smaller wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And my favorite thing about it, fave, 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 is that it, um, it can tilt on its side. Yes. So the belt yep. runs horizontally and then I can mm-hmm. tilt it vertically and it runs vertically. And I mean, it does it instantly. Cool. I don't have to even release a, anything. I just take it and tip it. That's, cool. um, that's sweet. And that yeah. that's really been like an amazing, 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 amazing wow. thing. Yeah. And again, was buying a grinder that was like, <laughs> I had such confidence that it was going to save me so much time. And I wouldn't understand until about a year and a half later that like, if you're not buying the right belts, right. and if you haven't mm. tried like every belt there is out there, you don't know yet which ones like are efficient for you. Like how hard mm-hmm. do you push? Mm-hmm. How is it that you grind? How much grinding are you doing before heat treat versus after heat treat? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. are you taking the time to do a heat treatment process to make the steel dead soft before you do rough grinding because mm-hmm. then your belts last longer? And there's just like, a, it's an, it, I'd love to talk to like Robin Wood because mm-hmm. I don't think anyone's gone deeper than he and Zach on yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And that was something um, I had a great chance to have like the Brits come and visit me uh, a couple of years mm-hmm. ago. Sweet. So I had Barn and I had uh, Zach and Robin and everybody mm. came and crashed and we spent like the better part of a week together just mm, sort of screw- screwing around and like yeah. we made some tools in the shop and we That's um, That's mostly we hung out and like went swimming and drank beer <laughs> um, and like talked. And I, I was at the time like, completely shocked to even have these people in my house <laughs> yeah i bet um so yeah we didn't get to talking much about that but robin's like <laughs> robin's like um you know plugged in with people at Ro- like rolls royce like in their engine department like oh, wow. he's mm. using like the cutting the uh, buffing compounds that they use to like make to polish the um rotary blades like in mm. jet engines Jesus. So there's like really high end stuff that like does really great jobs, Damn. but like you need to yeah. know about that stuff in order to spec it or be able to buy it. So yeah, another, right. more of those industry standards. If you don't know how to spec that stuff, then you can't really buy it. Right. Right. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. The uh, sorry, I I made you go off on a tangent there. That's all right. That's all right. Where were we? Where were we, <laughs> we were, headed? We were talking about. He asked um, you what kind of grinder you have. Oh yeah, yeah the Radius Master. Right. 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 Yep. Yeah, right, right, right. And and I was talking about hoarding and like doing it debt free and that yeah, kind of yeah. stuff. Um, right. That's just my way. That's just like what I have done to keep myself safe. I think mm-hmm. probably ever since my experience living through like the financial crash while I was right. trying to get my career started. And right. it's like, nope, stay small, keep it small, no debt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been, I respect a, that. I have a very, very lucky, um, friend to have, um, Jean-José treats. Um, he is a knife Smith, um, from Germany, but he's like, uh, you know, he's, he's, he, I mean, wow, the skills and really like 
one-to-one -one trained by one of the German masters of, um, of, of ultra high carbon Damascus, Damascus, which is, mm. I mean, we're, we're talking like really next level stuff. Um, right. you know, blades that behave in ways that you would be appalled <laughs> to know that they could <laughs> behave. And if you could recreate it in a Sloyd knife, I mean, it would be like the stuff that, um, that like uh, uh, spoon carving with Tom, he's got some, some, I keep hearing about yeah. his like really high end knife. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. That's the kind of results you can expect from people who can heat treat in that way. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, using salt baths and you're like actually nailing things to the degree. Mm -hmm. um, when you do things by hand and eye, there is very much variables. Right, um, right, right. And judging temperature, I think like, the masters of the masters of the masters from like two generations ago could probably judge temperature to about 10 degrees. Oh, wow. That's pretty hmm. good. I mean, dead on accurate. Yeah, that's like that's, pretty That's pretty good. That's actually much more accurate than a kiln. Oh, really? So what it's, what's, what's the variance on a kiln? Like Again, the I'm not super experienced with actually like verifying what's going on inside the kiln. Um, mm -hmm. What I plan to do when I get my kiln is I'm going to run it a bunch of different times, set up a bunch of different ways, and I'm going right. to use... Um, thermocouples and I'm going to mm -hmm. like in, I'm going to probe different places in the kiln right. to find out where the hot spots are and where the cold spots sure. are and I'm sure. going to observe those spots it's going to take me like two weeks before I'm <laughs> totally familiarized with the kiln and can actually run a batch of tools but I need sure. to know um, when it cycles even when it's just holding a temperature and those mm -hmm. elements cycle on and off to hold that temperature Right. How much does it swing above that temperature and how much does it swing below that temperature in a given period of time? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's not supposed to do too much, right? I mean, that's, that's the whole idea. It's not supposed it's... to. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the guy who does the heat treatment on those high-end knives um, that we were talking about from Spoon Carving the Tom, yeah. um, the guy who does those heat treatments, I saw something that he had written a paper about his kiln and he has one of the best kilns in the world. And he was like, yeah, it's got a 50 degree temperature swing. Hmm. Wow. That's, yeah, that's... And when I'm trying to, and that was 50, I believe that was 50 degrees Celsius temperature swing. Oh, I see. So okay. when I'm trying to nail 800 degrees Celsius or 810 degrees Celsius, yeah. I'm okay soaking that steel at 805, but I'm mm -hmm. not okay soaking that steel at 860. Mm -hmm. That's that's a larger temperature variant than I would desire. Right. Um, and like the way that I'm heat treating things, I'm sure that I'm opening up a quagmire to even discuss it. But the the when you heat treat in open flame, like the yeah. steel is kind of a four dimensional material. There's the three dimensions that we know and can observe and can watch and you can like heat it up and you can smash it and you can do all of these things and it occupies space. Right. But the thing that you forget is that it's time sensitive. Mm -hmm. So it's Very time, so, yeah. time plus temperature and longer exposure to temperature has greater effects on the internal components of the steel that you're trying to be in control of. Right. And one of the strategies um, that I think old time Smiths used and that I have employed is that um, when you're doing a heat treat by eye, one of the ways, and again, this is big, big quotation marks around it, one mm -hmm. of the ways that you can mit mitigate the problems that happen when you overheat steel um, is by making sure that it was heated up very fast and achieved the temperature you were looking for fast and then was quenched fast. 
right. like reaching that temperature and holding it there, it's going to exponentially compound the negative effects of hitting that temperature. Hmm. Hmm. So when you're, when you're using a kiln, usually you need to soak. You leave the steel in at a certain temperature for a period of time. Right. Um, it's normal for it to be like 15 minutes for a knife. And if I'm soaking for 15 minutes and it's soaking at a temperature that's higher than I want, I'm mm. actually going to end up with steel that's worse than what I got by doing a really quick heat treat. Um, I see. The I... inverse effect of that is that modern steels are alloyed, and a lot of those alloying elements take longer to enter the steel, ma the iron matrix at heat treat temperature. So mm. soaking is very desirable if you're going to achieve like the ultimate performance of that steel. Right. And a lot of low alloy steels, if you heat treat them quick, they just behave like carbon steel. So mm -hmm. like if you take your 52100 and you heat treat it like real quick, that might be a bad example. I'm sure somebody who knows more than I do would be able to call me out on that. But heat treat it real quick. Yeah, you got a good knife. It's going to behave like 1095. Mm -hmm. Um but you didn't get the chromium in solution. You didn't get some of the other things going on. And so you don't have chromium carbide. You don't have the kind of cementite that you want. And mm. so you don't have the wear resistance. It'll get freaking sharp. It'll pass all the tests. But it's not quite achieving what that steel is designed to do. Sure, hmm. sure. So not the, using it to its full potential. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I get what you're saying. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. so technical. I mean, my, my God, you know, what you just explained, I think the average listener is like, what in <laughs> they the tuned hell out. is this guy talking about? <laughs> <laughs> totally lost me there. Uh, yeah, it's so Reed, true. Reed, could you, for the, for the layman listener, could you just give a, like a very um, basic rundown of how, like, what is the process of making a tool? Because yeah, yeah, some people thanks. might not even know. Right. Sweet. Yeah. 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 And on top of that, before you get going, uh, I was going to say for the home maker, you know, let's yep. like for me, for me and Mark, for example, we, yep. we use, uh, we use spring steel yep. and we have used a one steel for making our, um, uh, turning hooks for our pole lathes. Totally. And so, you know, we've gone from like not hardening and, and tempering at all to like, you know, just doing a, uh, a forge like temper. a, yeah, yep. like a forge temper where we yep. take it out of the forge, quench it in oil and then draw the temper. Yep. Yeah. Uh, that's, yep. and then I've also used a conventional oven to like, you know, hold, temper it for like two hours at 400 some degrees. So yep. like I've tried a different methods, but I would say that's, that's all we know, you know, and for the average home, um, maker they're not going to go out and invest in a kiln so like no, what can no, they no, do no. yeah yeah what yeah. can they do if you're willing to share the knowledge totally uh, yeah totally, of how, what totally. the process is of making a tool yeah and I'll, I'll try my best to keep it on the briefer side um, <laughs> main thing about steel main thing thing about steel um the tool steel that we're going to work with um uh -huh. yeah i guess we'll start all the way from the basics so steel isn't steel isn't steel there's like mm -hmm. low alloy steels there's high alloy steels there's ultra high carbon there's low carbon there's all this different stuff because we make it for a lot of different uses so for right. tools we're really only talking about stuff that has you know something over 0.5 percent carbon alloyed okay. into it and okay. under i don't know 1.5 percent carbon um, the ultra high carbon Damascus that I was talking about, my buddy in Germany making, he gets up above that figure. And when you have mm. that much carbon, you've got like a nightmare situation going on for heat treat. You need to, you need to have everything under control, even the heats you were taking while you were forging the thing. So mm. for, for our discussion, um, basically we're talking about that realm, you know, above 0.5 and probably under 1.5, um, carbon. 
uh, like your O1 tool steel that I believe has around one point of carbon. Mm. Um, and that's a pretty typical like uh, edge tool place to be. Like 1095 we call the standard. And 1095 really means um, one O and then you put a point. And the one O, I forget exactly what it's referring to, but the, the 0.95 is the amount of carbon that's in it. Mm-hmm. So for the 10 O steels, you get like 1075 that has 0.75% carbon. You get 1080 that has 0.80, 0.80% carbon. You get 1095, mm-hmm. that's 0.95. It's about 1% carbon. Right. Um, so the critical thing about steel in that point range is that it can experience phase change. It can either be soft and in its softened state, um, even at room temperature, it's easy to file it. It's, you could hammer it and it would deform. You could mm-hmm. put it in a vise, you could bend it. Um, right. So phase change comes about when you heat the steel above a certain temperature, which we usually call the Curie point, or well, really even above that, the Curie point refers mostly to magnetism, but often right. it's used as an indicator that you're really close to a heat treat temperature. Yeah. Um, again, the words get weird too, because heat treat can mean a number <laughs> of different things. Right. Um, it's so contemporary because like in Europe, often when people say, yeah, I tempered the steel, they mean that they hardened it. And here oh, when see. we say we tempered it, we mean that we hardened it already and then we baked it in oven to soften it. Right. So the phase change takes place of above a certain temperature. And essentially what's going on inside the steel is that carbon melts at a lower temperature than iron. Mm. And the carbon literally becomes liquid and permeates the molecules of iron. Mm, And when it's at that temperature and the carbon is quote in solution, that's something you'll hear bladesmiths say. Um, If you quench it quick, the, the carbon does not have a chance to escape those iron atoms again. Mm -hmm. And it's locked into the iron as the steel cools. And that quenching actually produces an enormous amount of internal stress and it yields a new form of iron and carbon um, that's called martensite. Martensite. Yep. It's Uh like where uh, where the iron can sort of be thought as roughly like little cubes Uh because the the atoms are sort of cubaceous um, and they form... Uh, nucleated grains in the steel. So that's one of the things that we're encountering and dealing with with temperature. Um, You want fine grains, so you want small nucleation sites. You want lots of them, and you want it to look really like smooth and creamy when you break the steel. Yeah, yeah. Um, So when it gets locked in, it's in this incredibly stressed state, and that's called martensite. And the steel is physically larger than it was when it was just iron and carbon in solution below that temperature. Hmm. Um, and that creates tremendous internal stress and brittleness, but it also uh-huh. brings um, hardness. Right. Hardness and strength are not the same thing. Right. So when it's really, really hard, it, you th- if you dropped it on the ground, it, it could break like glass. It's right. very brittle. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we do what's called tempering, which refines that martensite structure into, um, uh, I mean, tempering is the perfect word, a tempered version of martensite. It reduces the stress. It converts mm-hmm. some of that martensite back towards some of the other things that it was beforehand, but not mm-hmm. so much to lose the working properties of the knife. So when you're making a tool, you're always trying to balance these two things, hardness and toughness. Right, mm-hmm. because awesome. too much hardness and it the tool will shatter. Mm-hmm. Not enough hardness, 
and the edge will just roll. Right. It won't stand up to use. Right. So that's where we introduce like the series of tests, right? Um, well, why don't we follow, let's follow through with like what are the, the thread we're already on, which is basic heat treat. So like yeah. um, in the olden days, they would say the temperature to quench is cherry red. Um, mm -hmm. And we need to keep in mind that cherry red looks really different in direct sunlight than it does in shade. Um, course, right. And that the light that comes out of a forge is literally the same light that comes from the sun. So mm. like high temperature at the forge, yeah, you really want to wear sunglasses. So remember that. Mm. It does oh, burn wow. your eyes the same way that staring at the sun does. Mm. I did not um, know that. It, for general use, this is not an issue. But like when you're forge yeah. welding and you've, yeah. you're achieving really high temperatures and you're like looking in there really intently to see if it's ready to go, you're burning yeah. your eyeballs. You got to put you got to oh, put yes. green glass on. You can't do that. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. So to judge that temperature, you need like a pretty dark environment. So if you're mm -hmm. working outside, you got to keep like a bucket handy so you have a real nice shade source. And oh, you can right. stick it in there and you can look at it. Mm -hmm. um, and again, that <laughs> brings in that whole thing of like being able to judge temperature by eye, because mm. what's cherry red and what's dull red and what's mm. bright red? <laughs> you know, like. Uh, right. Well, it's a hundred hundred degrees difference, so you kind of need oh, wow. to have that under control, <laughs> right? And uh, depending on the environment you're in, it might be more than a hundred degrees different. Mm -hmm. So um, that's where you can use a magnet. You want to heat the steel up to approximately cherry red, and then you're going to quench it into a quenching medium. In, What's the temperature there, uh, roughly? So, uh, cherry red. So cherry red, you're 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 like it's a safe number to say fifteen hundred degrees because that's generally a pretty safe temperature for all carbon steels and like like things that you're going to be able to get your hands on. Uh -huh. um, that's where the magnet comes in place, though, because the magnet refers to the Curie point, and that's like just a little bit below there. But for the kind of steels that you'd be working with, that can be commonly got. You'll have a little more trouble with spring steel, but with O1, you could quench it right at the Curie point. You'll get full hardness because O1 mm. is like specifically designed for through hardening to get okay. real hard and get hard all the way through. I so see. And you said you'll have a hard time with spring steel. That's kind of what we're using now. <laughs> so I'm curious a, to hear what you what you would say about spring steel. You have like a harder time because spring steel has less carbon and you need to get it to a higher temperature in order to quench it and reach full hardness. Got it. And spring okay. steel is meant to be flexible when it's right, fully hard. Right, right. So it's never quite interacting with the um, ultimate hardness level that you're going to see with the O1. Um, mm. But you can definitely achieve the same kind of hardness. Um, okay. Uh, in, uh, uh, I'm sorry, not the same kind of hardness comparatively to the O1, but the useful right. hardness for woodworking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I tried a little experiment at home. I used O1, uh -huh. uh, hardened it in oil, yep. vegetable oil. Yep. And it worked out fine, you know. And then I just drew the temper. Yep. Um, but with uh, with spring steel, I recently tried just a water quench. I was like, you know, just, just sure. try this. Sure. And I hardened it in water and then drew the temperature. And I got a phenomenal edge yeah. on, on a water hardened spring steel versus yeah. Yeah. an oiled hardened yep. Uh, yep. O1. One of the, well, and, and O1 is a little bit unfair to be comparing to because like straight up, it's designed for getting hard. I see. That's what it does. And uh -huh. you can actually quench, you can underheat O1 and it's hardenable to full hardness from like, it's like 1275 degrees if you actually look it up on the sheets. Uh -huh. And that's way too low. 
but it'll still get hard because it wants oh, to get hard that badly. Um, uh -huh. I had issues with O1 in the in the early days because I wanted to do peened tangs. Uh -huh. O1 wants to get hard so badly that if you that if you forge it at all and then let it cool to room temperature, it will be hard. Mm, right. You don't and even some you don't even that... need to quench it. That you had gotten, Mark had gotten some advice about yeah from not, Ro from not, Robin Wood yeah about not quenching or needing because he said O1 can air harden so it you don't will really air harden to... you don't need it right. and actually it'll it'll an air hardened O1 will yield a pretty durable edge yeah it's it won't be really brittle well for me. it won't be brittle right where O1 if you quench it in oil it's going to have a tendency towards brittleness because it gets so freaking hard. Right, and oh, that's where you're going to encounter lots of issues with grain growth and stuff. Because if you didn't refine the grain like to a really, really, really maximal de degree, mm. now I'm confusing people, right? Grain refining <laughs> grain. So let's get back. Let's get back for a second to the sequence yes. here, right? Sequence. <laughs> um, if you're actually working with steel at home and you're going to try to change the shape of it with heat and then harden it, it's a really good idea to spend a little bit of time online googling um, thermal cycling and or mm -hmm. normalizing and or normalizing. floor right. annealing those are all right. the same different terms for the same thing right. um it's heating it up to something close to your cherry red or a little bit lower than that and mm -hmm. then allowing it to slowly cool to instill air still air being the critical component because mm. any any blowing air or moving air technically you're quenching so you you hmm. you want it you want it cooling quick enough it's not like putting it into ashes or into vermiculite to like anneal it and let it cool really, really slow. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. That's a different mechanical process where you're like preparing the steel more for uh, working it with files or machining it. Mm -hmm. And you want to remove all of the stresses right. and mm -hmm. all of the hardness. Right. But annealing that way actually grows the grain tremendously. So afterward, you'd want to perform this thermal cycling before you actually hardened it. Mm -hmm. So really, you just want to do this, you know, two, three, four times. You could do it more times than that if you want to. Um, you know, arguably, the more times, the better. You do eventually get some diminishing returns because you can refine grain so far that it becomes less hardenable. So mm -hmm. again, like the technical realm of steel is actually <laughs> full of full of rules and full of problems and full of things you can do wrong. Um, but almost none of them put you in a situation where you like can't make a useful tool at home, you know? Yeah. Right. So, so here's the deal. You heat your steel, you get it hot enough to forge it, which is going to be like, you know, an orange heat or at least a bright red heat or a yellow heat, which is higher than orange. Um, you've grown, you've exposed it to enough temperature that the little cubit nucleated cells, for lack of a better word, of iron molecules because iron is essentially a crystal um, so you've got these molecules gathering together into crystalline forms and then they're bonded by the edges to all the other crystals around it so the higher temperatures those crystals melt into each other and you get larger and larger bodies of crystals but what you want is to break them back up and render the steel back to this like really diverse really fine-grained material made of tons of tiny little crystals. Mm -hmm. So the thermal cycling does that through like a thermical, thermal mechanical process, like bringing it to this certain heat and then letting it cool rather quickly, but not quenching it because you don't want to turn it to martensite. 
you, you're letting it cool quickly enough that it's actually stressing the steel. And what it does is it physically breaks those crystals up. Hmm. And then on the next heat, you've got more sites for new grains to, to nucleate and grow. And you take it up to that next heat and then you let it cool again and it's broken them down further. So you want to do that numerous times before you actually quench it and harden it. Mm -hmm. um, and it, 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 uh, it will wildly improve the working properties of the steel. Steel right. that has big crystals, um, they tend to be brittle and it will flake off and you'll get problems mm -hmm. where like the crystals are actually larger than the width of the edge that you're trying to sharpen on it. Mm, yeah. And that's where you get into a realm where like, like you can't get it sharp. Uh, that's mm -hmm. happened to me. Yeah. And that's probably the reason why. Now, the yeah. cool thing is steel is up for another go always. And so if you did <laughs> fail, like who cares? Right. It, it, you know, hate it again, <laughs> hate it again, do it again. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. Um, yeah. I was working on a Russian style, like quote unquote, Sloyd um, last week that was laminated and it's got all this fancy stuff going on. And I was so chuffed mm. and I was so happy about the whole thing. And I quenched it and was like, oh, this is great. And then I got into grinding it. And I'm like, this is behaving a little funny. Like, what's going on here? <laughs> and then I go and I test it and I'm like, yeah, that's not hard. Oh, wow. You know, so it still happens to me. And that's why, yeah. that's why getting back to the methodology, right? Like, so we take it through these processes. Like we, we, we do these thermal cycling processes regardless of what we did to it because we want to be confident and be sure of what we've created in the steel before we quench it. Yeah. After we quench it, we have an opportunity before tempering to run some tests on that piece of steel. Right. Now, you don't have a ton of time because generally speaking, once you've quenched something, you've like maximally introduced stress. So like really, you kind of right. want to get it to tempering like ASAP. Right. You don't want to hmm. leave it there overnight. You might come back in the morning and it's in two pieces. Hmm. Oh, wow. When you quench a piece of steel, and this is not true for all of them, but um, right. right in that moment when it comes out of the quench, that's not as hard as it's going to get. 12 hours later, that's as hard as it's going to get. Hmm. So it's interesting. I did not know it takes that. I mean, it could continually, it uh, continue continues to, to take place. And this is where we wow. see some really high end heat treats that happen because you quench it and then you temper it and then you can go and you can sub freeze it, right? You can put it in like a spiritus, a spiritus bath with like dry ice and <laughs> freeze God. it like wow. freeze it to like negative a hundred Fahrenheit <laughs> and it'll actually wow. increase. It's another quench. It hardens it further. So you'll jump wow. up again in hardness and then you take it back out of there and now you need to temper it again. Jeez. That's nuts. So, that's incredible, man. And that's with no heat in between other than a tempering yeah. cycle, which you know, yeah. that should make it softer. Yeah. So yeah, there's really wild stuff about steel where like it is <laughs> continuing to, the, the, the forces you enacted on it have a real delay. Yeah. And that's where that fourth dimension comes in with time. Mm. Yeah. And you just like, you always have to be paying attention to time and temperature. Wow. Temperature the, the, first, I guess, arguably, yeah. but really hand in hand with time at all times. Wow. So when you're out of the quench, you've got this moment to check. And this is right. your moment to check whether you got it full hard or whether you case hardened it or whether it didn't get hard. Right. The way that I test that is by putting, I'll, I'll take it, I'll go to the grinder and I'll kiss the edge, um, not to sharpen it square mm -hmm. 90 degrees to the edge i'm knocking the edge back just a little bit mm -hmm. okay so i'll kiss it on the grinder just to take the very small layer that was exposed to the heat off so that right. i know i'm testing fresh steel that's inside 
Sure. Um, at high, I don't want to introduce too many confusing things, but at high temperature, <laughs> steel reacts with oxygen and the carbon bonds with the oxygen and leaves. So the very right. surface on the outside of it might seem like it's soft, right? but it's just because there's no carbon. Right underneath it, it's dead hard. So right. you grind a little bit off, so you know you're in that fresh material. And mm. I have a giant wine bottle, and I scratch the bottle. Hmm. I use it like a saw. I try to saw into the bottle. And if it, wow. cu if it cuts glass, that's full hard. That's like, mm. you know, it's above yeah. 63 Rockwell. It could be a, 63. Wow, that's it, pretty good. It could yeah. be like, yeah, you, you, the point where yeah. you stop scratching white glass yeah. is low 60s. 61, 62, maybe with yeah. a super steel, it's 59. But you're right, yeah. you're right there. You're right in nice. that upper realm. And yeah. if it'll just saw right into it, you're like, oh man, I could be up in like, I could be like 65, I could be 67. Wow. Um, <laughs> so that's the test to be like, all right, I'm full hard. I'll let that mm. go to the temper. After tempering, I'll check it on the glass and nine times out of 10, it'll still scratch just a little. Mm -hmm. And that tells me I'm like 60, pretty much 60. I can, with a pretty high okay. degree of confidence, I can say that's 60, 61, probably 59 in the core or maybe in another part of the blade where I didn't quite get the same heat in it. That's pretty good. Um, so the next test, if, it'll, if it won't scratch glass out of the temper, that's not bad. That's not an alarming, um, mm -hmm. but a, it better skip a file still. So I'll okay. test a file on it. And as long as the file skips and will not cut at all, then you know you're good. Mm -hmm. So those so are the say... first two tests. Let's say it doesn't scratch glass. Can you let it sit there for a few more hours? Will it scratch glass then? You're probably not. Okay. You're, you're, you're probably, this is like your quick test, old school style, right out uh -huh. of the quench. That's a pass fail. If it right. fails that out of the quench, right. it might get harder than it is, but you're right. never reaching full hardness. Got it, got it. Yeah, got it. so okay. that's an indicator to just turn around and go do your heat treat again. Got it, okay. Um, and a reminder to the folks listening that if you do heat treat something and it fails, you want to start by thermally cycling again. You don't want to just yes. straight up heat treat it again, but you don't okay. have to do it over and over and over. You could just do one cycle. Got it. Just okay. get it up to a dull red, let it cool, go again. Okay. Um, Got it. So, uh, so yeah, those are the first two tests before I'll actually put a, put a, put a blade into the pile that I'm going to grind. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. And then after grinding, uh, I, I get all the way to a sharp edge and I do an edge roll test. Uh, I have a carbide um, rod that I use for, um, for rolling edges on card scrapers and stuff. And so I lay the bevel flat on that and then I put a good deal of pressure. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm leaning it like on my vice underneath a light. A lot of what I do is about lighting and you got to be able to see what you're actually trying to see. So yeah, mm -hmm. good lighting sure. up close on the vice up near your face. I put a good amount of pressure on it, probably 50 pounds of pressure on the bevel mm -hmm. on that thing. And that's, that seems good. So less pressure. So, but I start to roll it up so that I'm literally trying to flake the edge on that hmm. carbide rod. Mm -hmm. And I'll do probably, yeah, I'm stabbing in the dark, but five or eight degrees worth of rolling up mm. onto the very edge, which is now physically being bent to the side out of line, right on a point load, right on the edge of that rod. Uh -huh. And while I'm holding it up flexed, I then pull the knife all the way along it 
and make sure that I flexed the edge all the way from the bottom all the way out to the tip. And as long as that edge will flex, you know, deflect off of center the five or so degrees and immediately behind rolling it, it just, it has a memory. It goes right back to center. Right back to where it's supposed to be, right? And as long as there's no chips, no yep. sound of any kind of flaking or cracking or anything. Yeah. No snapping while in hand. Yep. You're pretty guaranteed that's going to behave hmm. well. Yeah. Sweet. And mind you, it's got to pass those other two tests to know the realm of hardness because that third test, like you could pass that test and still not be quite hard enough. So, you, you know, you want to follow the right sequence before, before hmm. you're being overly confident because you took the third test. Um, so definitely always do the previous test first. And that, mm -hmm. that's how you like sleep at night when you're doing it old school. <laughs> and you're like, you're like, yeah, I tried to ruin that knife and it's totally fine. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So it's That's good. Cool. I can sell this one. And of course, every like, I'd say right now, it's probably every like 20 knives I snap one. Hmm. Oh, okay. Hmm. Yeah. And that's just, just you know, the distill is just. Got to check it, the grain. Yeah. You got to know. You yeah. got to check. Batch yeah. to batch, I'll always snap a knife. Um, right. I mean, uh, not batch of tools to batch of tools. Um, batch right. of steel to batch of steel. Right. I see. Usually when you buy steel, they'll deliver it to you with a mill cert. So you actually get to see like um, they put it through a mass spectrometer and they broke out like all the mm -hmm. alloying percentages. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so you can yeah. then reference that to make sure that you got like the alloy that you bought. Right. Um, and so when I get a batch that has a new mill cert, it tells me that they resupplied the factory where I ordered. And mm -hmm. so I, I do test my methodology on that new batch mm -hmm. of steel. I see. Um, now, snapping those blades has been really painful lately because it's only <laughs> proven that they were really good. <laughs> yeah. The last one I snapped, uh, that was that was two weeks ago. I snapped one, and um, it was fifty-two one hundred, um, or if you're European, it was one point three five zero five, which is the higher grade of fifty-two one hundred, um, and it. I had to bend it past 90 degrees to get it to snap. Whoa. Um, and that's Jeez. like a, it was a really thin blade too. It was only two millimeters thick. So that's a really thin <laughs> knife being flexed wow. a really yeah. long way before it snapped. And it right. looked real good inside. That's nice. amazing. So that's that, great, that made me real happy. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, damn, I wish I could have ground that up and tried it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but so, very fun. so from that point, then, you know, you're good to go. You can, uh, heat treat it or do you heat treat then put the final edge on mm. well mm. this is um that would just be testing my my whole working methodology for forging and for heat treat so that proves okay. that proves yes. that everything up to the point of putting the edge on went well yeah. and right, right, so right, then right, i have right. like dead confidence with the rest of the knives that are in that batch that i can grind right. because i've treated them all the same i can grind mm. them all the same and mm. i know right. that they're going to behave more right. or less the same. Now, okay. every blade in a batch gets scratch tested, file tested, and edge roll tested, whether it's a hook, whether it's a crooked knife, whether it's anything. And I, I mm. use a handful of different steels. So it's like you're always kind of refreshing hmm. these different techniques for the different steels that you work with. Sure, sure. Yeah. So um, 
So that was a pretty good tangent. Um, yeah, that was fun. I have one more question. I know okay, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, we're probably coming up on a two-hour mark here, and most of our <laughs> listeners have actually gone to dinner now. <laughs> uh, so I have a I have a request from a friend of mine who asked me to make him a utility knife recently. Yeah. So I, you know, I've played around making some knives before, yep. and the last one I made. I dropped one day and it totally snapped in half. So, nice. Yeah. Uh, anyways, I'm still playing around. I don't have a kiln. It's mostly just like a little conventional oven and, you know, oil quench or water quench. Yep. But I'm I'm trying to figure out when in the process do you actually put an edge on? So generally speaking, I would say for me, and this is probably wrong that I'm doing um, this, I usually, you know, I forge it to final shape and then I don't quench it. I just take it to the grinder. Mm-hmm. I grind it to final shape. Mm-hmm. Then I take it back in the forge, heat it, quench it, then temper it, then hand sharpen it. So when you go to the, when you do your rough grinding after forging, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, do you grind all the way to zero on the edge? Uh, quite close. Yeah. But not, not, you know, I probably leave, I don't get a sharp edge, but I, I get it pretty close. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Now, I know some folks who grind all the way to a sharp edge and polish the blade before they heat treat it. Hmm. Oh, interesting. But those folks that I know that work that way, they're Mm -hmm. using a salt bath for heat treatment. So when that that. that blade gets exposed to heat, it's also kept away from oxygen. Uh And so there's no opportunity for the carbon to leave the very thin edge. Um, in my working methodology, I follow, I I follow pretty much the same thing. Um, I forge and, um, the, the way that I'm working, like, uh, I, I, I follow like this old sort of Norwegian method and and I call it that because it Mm. came from a book who was written by a Norwegian, but it was probably Mm. used lots and lots of different places. Um, the, the sort of main moving of volumes and distributing mm. of material I do at full forging temperatures of like mm. bright orange into yellow, upper mm-hmm. 1800 degrees, something like that. Right. And uh, only, but I only use that kind of heat for things like um, pinching to isolate the material for the tang and forging the right. tang out and, right. and like roughly extending the blade um, mm-hmm. to be its rough length and rough shape. Right. But from that point, all of the fine forging, I only allow it to a red heat. I see. So I am sort of, I am sort of normalizing while I'm forging, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there can be issues with that. If you, it's tough. It's tricky because if you look at the key of steels, or if you read about the technical stuff about like working with a given steel, they'll always give you a bottom temperature for forging, mm-hmm. and that bottom temperature is going to be hotter than the temperature I use to do my final forging. But mm-hmm. I've like very slowly developed a feel for like how much deformation I can introduce without actually causing the steel to like get anywhere near the realm where it's going to crack. Mm-hmm. And that's a concern if you hit steel when it's too cool. Um, it can sort right. of mush apart. Right. Uh, so I'm following a sequence of heats um, that are descending. They're getting cooler and cooler and cooler while I'm still shaping. So I am like using physical stress and the thermal mechanical stress to refine the grain. Mm-hmm. And when I have my finished forged object, it's, it's basically dead soft. And so it's easily ground, it's easily filed, it's easily everything else. Got um, it. So I'll grind it into the final shape and I'll do the bevel grinding too, but mm-hmm. I leave the edge itself 
one mm. one millimeter thick. Yeah, that's mm. what I was gonna say. I mine. I've I've done that in the past, where it's mm -hmm. just like barely a millimeter, millimeter and a half. Mm. That extra little bit of thickness. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like technically speaking, I could probably get it wrong, but I, you're guarding against uh, decarburization, which is like mm -hmm. burning off the carbon. Right. Um, so you're you're giving yourself some meat that you know that you're going to grind away to get into the good steel. But right. additionally, mm. I feel strongly that having that extra little bit of thickness at the edge translates to enough extra thickness along the bevel for the right. for the bevel itself to hold temperature better when you pull it out of the heat and put it into yes. the quench. So that time yes, when it's yes. exposed to air before it gets quenched, mm. you're right. holding heat better in the edge. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because it'll lose it so quickly. And yeah. You won't yeah. have any heat yeah. in there to quench. And I'd remind yeah. you too about the water quenching. That's like really old school stuff. And um, yeah. number one, heat the water up. Make sure it's like warm to the touch oh interesting. and okay. number two add some salt what kind of salt would you use for a, for a water just regular table salt yeah kosher salt um okay I, i've i've quenched in well it's brine quenching at that point but i've the brine the problem with water is that it it um it wants to steam so when mm, that sure. steel goes in there it forms what we call a vapor jacket yeah, yeah so yeah, you got a you, yeah you've got steam all around that steel you don't have water touching it sucking right, the temperature right, out right, right, so right. it can actually um it can it can it can make it not get all the way hard um, and the other thing that tends to happen a lot with water quenching is breaking blades they just snap while they're in there yeah too much stress because right? there's too much stress because the yeah. when the water when the water overcomes the vapor jacket it's such an effective coolant that it right. really shocks the steel tremendously uh. And so the salt particles will essentially just create a, a barrier? Or it breaks it down look? some of that vapor jacketing effect. Yeah, it, I and, it, and I think it changes like the boiling temperature of the water too. Um, yeah, it raises it, I believe. That, could, that would make yeah. sense for what we're trying to do. That would make right. sense to me. I don't I know. know. I, I don't... know that from cooking pasta. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Right, right, right. We should all know that. <laughs> Good old Italian, you know, yeah, forging yeah. now. No, it's true. It's true. You're actually, uh, I had an argument with my wife not long ago, and she, she proved me wrong. Um, if you salt the water before putting it on the heat, it takes it yeah. longer to boil. Yeah, oh, but nice. the salt does make the water reach a higher temperature. So the correct way is to boil it and then add the salt. Mm. Nice uh, little no. side note for everybody. Uh. Um, so those are two things you can do. And then, like um, when you get well, into uh, real, real, like intense technical water quenching, you're going to end mm -hmm. up looking at like Japanese swords and stuff. Right. Um, yeah. They use clay on the outside. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that they put a layer of clay, so yep. it kind of changes that. Um... It upsets I guess the, the temper. Well, the water, the vapor jacketing doesn't happen. Oh, right. So the clay right. dissolves that process from taking place. And it actually, uh -huh. I guess they've proven through scientific studies that, like, um, they put different blends of clay on the body and then on the edge. Okay. And hmm. the clay actually, it renders the water a much more effective um, quenchant. So it actually hmm. quenches wow. it, like, even more severely. Mm. Um, but because of the clay, I guess it slows down enough of the shock that it improves your ability to quench without cracking. Wow. But that's, that's a, incredible. that's, crazy. that's a yeah. very, water quenching is a very technical realm unless you're dealing with like really, really thick cross sections of steel.
Right. You know, if you're so you're telling me to don't do water course. <laughs> uh, yeah, basically, I'm telling you. <laughs> That's um, a nice way to put it. <laughs> and uh, and I would say like take a close look at the oil you're using. Um, uh-huh. The best like vegetable oil, over the counter oil that, in my opinion, is yeah. um, is is rapeseed uh, canola. Rapeseed okay. oil. Canola. Okay. Yeah. Canola. canola. Yeah, that's what I think I have. Just yep. regular. Yep. Um, good old canola oil. And I don't want to get too complicated, but I use mark quenching. So I heat my canola to over 400 degrees and then I quench into that. Oh, oh wow. Over 400 degrees. Yep. Interesting. Um, huh. Basically what that's, oh man, I don't want to get too complicated on you. <laughs> when you look, it's... when you look at like the, uh, there's like, um, there's these little maps that they give you for the quenching and heating of a given steel. And it shows right. you this kind of like, uh, this window of opportunity for creating martensite. And there's like, as the steel is cooling, there's a temperature at which martensite starts to form. Mm -hmm. And then as it continues to cool, there's a temperature at which martensite stops forming. And now you're at a fixed static thing. And Mm -hmm. from that temperature down, you're not really gonna gain any more martensite. It's just continuing to cool. Um, you'll gain martensite again if you do that spiritist super cold bath, like you, because you swing so far into the other realm, you 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 can pull more of the retained austenite into martensite. But right. it's so a mar quench. You're quenching in between the point where the martensite starts and stops forming, mm-hmm. and basically you give the steel a moment to kind of transition a little bit more gently and more thoroughly all the way through the piece of steel, all the way into martensite. So wow. when I pull it out, it's not fully hard. And mm. if I was to take it still hot, too hot to touch, it's smoking hot, it's 400 degrees, and try to scratch glass with it, it, it the edge will roll. But mm. if I put it down on the concrete floor and wait 10 minutes for it to come down to room temperature, only then does it come up all the way to the hardness you got in the quench. Uh, so once wow. it's cool to the touch, I'll go grab a blade and test it and it'll scratch glass. Nice. Um, this is something that I started doing at the recommendation of my good friend who I was already talking about and, um, and because I was working with some higher carbon steels. And it's yeah. something you can do um, to really, there's a lot less um, warping and things like that. So my mm-hmm. little blades, which do on occasion have a tendency to warp, Um, there's less of that going on. And when you, when you pull it out of the quench and it's 400 degrees and it's not quite totally hard, like Mm -hmm. a Sloyd knife, you have a chance to sight it and say, oh, that's not quite straight. And I'll hit it with a hammer. I'll straighten it while it's hot because it's not brittle yet. And it'll hold that memory. So you have like, you have like this, this, this real like intense moment where you're like, oh oh, no, oh no, oh no, oh, it's straight. Okay, good, good, good. Oh no, that one's not straight. Bang, bang, bang. Oh, is it straight? (laughs) Bang, bang, bang. So it's like, yeah, you can, you can kind of fix it by the seat of your pants right in the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Otherwise, if you do have a warped blade, I recommend straightening um, while you're tempering. So pull it while it's full temperature and you're like at the end of the temper, pull it out while it's hot. You can hammer on it to straighten it. Okay. Got Hmm. it. Um, yeah, man, it's a, it's crazy how, how deep the metal working goes. It's every time I, every time I talk to, to people who've been doing this a long time, I'm just like, man, so technical. I I, I don't even, such a science of technical. It's amazing. I I can see why, why there's so much overlap with like, um, 
you know, the, uh, the alchemists and cause it totally. really is yeah. alchemy. I mean, yeah. 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 When you're describing the phase change, I mean, to me, that's alchemical process. Yeah. Totally. I mean, and when the first time that I saw it happen, I mean, I, I didn't speak for like three days. <laughs> just had to process it. I just had to process <laughs> like, it. Like what? it was just, just like, I mean, literally just like breathing out of my mouth, just like jaw hanging open. Just like, <laughs> I mean, nice. and the person who did the demo, like, they had two pieces of steel that they forged into like roughly knife shaped things. And then they hardened one and then they cut the other one in half. Uh -huh. And you're like, Oh, <laughs> so the same piece of steel, you just do a few things to it and you can use it to cut a piece of steel. Like, that's just, I mean, what piece of wood can you use to cut another piece of wood? <laughs> like, though actually, you can, I mean, wedges and things you can. Yeah, of course, yeah but, certainly. Yeah. But Man. I'm such a tangential person that I didn't get you all the way through the homemaking of blades, but oh, no, that's, of, that's of the plenty. finished tool. So from there on, yeah. you know, you'll have to deal with handling it yourself, right. <laughs> <laughs> which I can spend just as much time talking about. I know. We, uh, we got to have you on a second time because I feel like you have so much knowledge in the tool making uh, arena that uh, it's worth sharing with sure, all Sure. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, I've had a lot of people reach out to me about making tools and wanting to start, uh, you know, making uh, pole lathe hooks and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah. I can help you, but I don't know. Like, I don't know that much technical stuff yeah, about, yeah, yeah. you know, quenching um, and uh, tempering. So. Let me give everybody a resource. Yeah. Um, there is a great book. Mm -hmm. I think it's out of print. But when I got my copy, it was easy to find. I'm hoping okay. it, I'm hope it still is. Like if anybody has like an eLibris account, for the, mm -hmm. like a used book account. Um, right. I found it in two seconds. Um, it's by Ray Larson, mm -hmm. and the book is called Toolmaking for Woodworkers. Mm. Oh, sweet. It is exactly what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I think the last copy of it was published uh, mid-90s, and okay. they okay. used to sell it through Woodcraft. And the guy, Ray Larson, I mean, not Larson, uh, shoot, maybe I have his name wrong, um, but the guy, Ray, used to make um, chisels and turning gouges and adzes and a handful of nice. other tools uh, for woodcraft. So he was like distributing them nationally. Right. And he wrote this book like for woodworkers to help in, uh, uh, free them to be able to solve some of their own problems. They cover all sorts of stuff, plane blades, chisels, adzes, like, yeah, Ray Larson. Okay, great, great. Yeah. Um, great book covers all the same stuff I did, but even more. Um, nice. he's got breakdowns about, um, because his whole slant is like, you know, there's great steel, like literally in your yard, you just need to learn how to identify <laughs> it. So he, he walks you through like how to identify different types of like automotive or construction steels and, mm, and right. rule out the ones you don't want to work with and test for the ones that you do. So like, yeah, you can make tools. Pretty much everybody who's listening to this has what they need already to make tools. <laughs> And right. if you didn't know it, like like uh, spoon carvers like Derek Sanderson, who I, I make the Sanderson hook, right. which is like inspired mm -hmm. by him directly and this whole right. story of us becoming friends, which you probably wanted me to talk about, but now I spent the whole time talking about tools. Um, <laughs> we'll he carved his first spoons with a utility knife that he bent. So <laughs> wow. like, just awesome. do it. Yeah. Yeah. Just do it. Yeah. That's like my first pole aid hooks I made out of just the regular steel Rebar. and a, a blowtorch. <laughs> totally. And... Hey, one yeah. of my favorite knives that I own is made out of rebar and was given to me by <laughs> this great, great friend, um, Brian Persico, and he got it in the Philippines. And it's like, mm. like he, 
he came home and he gave it to me and he told and the stories and he had filmed, he filmed this old guy in the jungle making them. You know, mm. the guy looks like he's like in his seventies and he's got this beautiful <laughs> smile on his face and he's like flexible, like a yogi master. And he's just like, oh, it's one of the most inspiring things I've ever seen. He's got like a, uh, uh, the tine of a forklift stuck in a log buried in the ground. And that's his wow. anvil. I love it. And oh, he makes knives out of rebar and he makes knives out of uh, old files and a mm. handful of other things. The rebar knives are made for harvesting vegetables. And uh. he's like, why do you want it harder? Right, exactly. <laughs> why do you want it harder? <laughs> yeah. Do you want to struggle to sharpen that? Or do you want to sharpen it in the water stone that we all use on the walk to the fields? Right, exactly. That's awesome. I, I love know. that. I love that. Um, I think yeah, contextual. Common sense. Yeah, com- yeah con- contextual common sense. Like there are, yeah, there there are lots there of go. moments when you, you don't really want a piece of steel to be that hard. You want Seriously. it to be easy to sharpen. Seriously, yeah. I know there's such an obsession now with you know utility knives and having the hardest steel. And I'm like, you're just opening cardboard boxes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why do you yeah. need such a sh- yeah. crazy piece of metal in right. your pocket? <laughs> because I don't want to learn to sharpen and I don't ever want to sharpen. That's why. I know. <laughs> and you're like, well, I don't know. It's not yeah. that hard. Yeah, then maybe you should have a knife in your pocket. No. I mean, I, th- I feel it's important for me to say, like, I, I, I work really hard not to judge any of that stuff. Yeah. And, like, yeah. of course, I don't agree with, like, plenty of things. From I, I, I am sure that, like, pretty much anybody is doing something I don't agree with, but I don't judge. It's, like, yeah. it's about the results you're getting. And, and sure. it's about, like, how you feel while you're doing it. Right, right. You know, just like with spoon carving, like I just adamantly, I know that I've had lots and lots of messages from people who were like, no, really, like this spoon knife really upgraded my work. Like I was able Mm. to take a leap forward or like I was never been able to get this smooth a finish or I was never able to do this or whatever it was. But I know for a fact that the thing that really was different about my knife, like there were a million other things that were different too, but it's just that like I delivered that to you with like uh, uh, a hand fettled edge that like mm. I, I, I tested it until it like cut real sweet. Yeah. And mm-hmm. like it's really just the final sharpening I put on it. And if you right. if you could just recreate that sharpening, then like You're... all of your knives will cut like that. Exactly. Right. right. That's that's I think if there's one word of advice I could give someone who's just starting learn how to sharpen yeah. just on a sharpens. cheap knife. Yeah. First just don't. Before yeah. you yeah. buy something yeah. high end. Yeah. 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 Yeah, seriously. I like would give master myself, your sharpening skills. I'd first. give myself that advice too, and I did. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, totally, totally. I yeah. can still remember how impressed I was when I got my first Moraniv. Yeah, um, it was just so freaking sharp. Yeah, and I, I remember this. how angry I was that night when I could not get it that sharp <laughs> again. You know, and and, and, and yeah. it was like that was like eight. That was while I was apprenticing at the cabinet shop. I had access to, to sharpening stuff, but. Yeah. When you're working in a shop like that, it's all, you know, the only blades you're actually handling are like jointer blades. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's all sandpaper, yeah. you know. And so, like, you don't actually learn that skill, even though it's so, so freaking important. Right. So then, right. like, you know, six years later or whatever, when I had bought, like, my Japanese hand plane and my first couple of chisels and was trying to learn to sharpen, I'm like, this is really hard. Like, this is yeah. harder than, than I ever thought this was going to be. Sure. Like. Yeah. Just learning to ha- how to feel what was happening. And that's all yeah. it is. Like it just takes yeah. a little bit of time. And it's so much, I guess if I had advice for anybody out there, if there was like a sharpening related question, I would just say like, focus on pressure. 
Focus on <laughs> on where you're putting the pressure. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. even the way that you're holding the handle in your hand, if you don't have like your finger, leading finger, yeah. pressing on that handle, like where the edge is, mm-hmm. then you're actually rolling the back. You're rolling the knife back off of the bevel, even yeah, though you sure. think you're pushing it onto it. Right. Yeah. Right. You know. Yeah. So it's where you're put, and that's true in carving too. Like, where are you? Where is the point load pressure on the knife right. while you're pulling right. it? If it's up close to the edge, the edge will kind of self-align. Right. But if you're putting pressure back behind the edge, you're going to have this feeling while you're using the knife that you're struggling to engage the cut. Yeah. Certainly. But even if yeah, some, we can get it. Yeah, we could get we could go deep on that. <laughs> we could get into sharpening, and that would be a whole another That's three a, or four hours. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. And that, yeah, you guys have been fully introduced to how like I do not stop talking. Because <laughs> man, straight but it's just, up, it's just... I, I am a hermit. Yeah, no, but it's awesome because now way. now I know we can have you on for consecutive episodes. Oh hell agree, yeah! If yeah, you yeah. agree to be on uh, to discuss those things, because we, me and Mark, have already been floating ideas about having someone on just to talk about sharpening yeah one oh, one cool. specific topic yeah. yeah one specific topic type episodes where we can just sit here and discuss sharpening and discuss you answer know, all the all the questions people all have. the technical questions that you know well, and probably we'll open it up to our listeners to you know to, to listen i think that's questions. a great idea and i and I, yeah. and maybe even i would suggest like uh maybe do that with a few people oh yeah, yeah exactly because yeah. i certainly, think yeah. you'll you'll still find that there's like um there's like just different perspectives and different little yeah, tweaks different and different thought, kinds yeah. of things like Absolutely. straight up. I think um, you guys should, should find some book binders to, inv- to, in- mm. to involve in your sharpening discussion. Mm. Yeah. Just so that you get like this totally different view. I, right. I had this conversation with um, uh, Brian Beadler and, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, oh gosh, I'm going to lose his name, but he has a mentor who is this really wild, um, he was like a hippie in the sixties and moved way out into, uh, into Utah and, uh, has lived like lived off the land this whole time and all this stuff. And, and anyway, I had a conversation with him about sharpening and he was the most curt about this, about the topic. He was like, Reed, do you know what's in a recycled book board? And I'm like, (laughs) I'm like, "Ah, uh, recycled paper. And he's like, yeah. And reams and reams of paper that's been stapled together. Mm. So the staples are in there. And like, oh, interesting. So, and they pair it. They pair it with a knife and they bevel the edges mm. and they do all this stuff. He's like, hey, when was the last time you carved something that every single cut you took, you had to sharpen? <laughs> oh, wow. And I'm like, well, huh. never. Like, you know, I've heard stories about like the wood from Mount St. Helens that can't be can't be worked because it's full of dust all the way through uh-huh. but um but i've never encountered that and he's like well that's what bookbinders deal with every day because we're carving leather which is full of silica and right. bookboard which is full of metal and wow. he's huh. like he was the one who who well him and brian both together it kind of infected me and and then i was like well fine i'm gonna try sharpening my shop knives at 400 because mm-hmm. they're like yeah we sharpen to four or 600 grit and then use a two-stage strop you know, so you have like a, a rough stropping compound and then a fine right. stropping compound. Right. And I checked out the knives like I was embarrassed mm, because geez. they were that sharp. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I just think there's so many perspectives and it all is, yeah. it all comes down to context and like. Definitely. Ah, it's, For sure. But there's not well, there's not a topic that could like chew through time better. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Well, shoot, Reed, this has been. uh 
I've learned a ton and amazing. I, I appreciate you coming on and sharing so much of your knowledge and, and just your story is really fascinating. And I loved it. Certainly. I loved inspiring. it. I want to, um, now can I ask for your stories and we'll just record that whole thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, yeah, we can chat offline or maybe, uh, on an, on one of the other episodes we can, we can, I mean, I know me and Mark have already done a little bit about ourselves, but we can. Excellent. Well, after, more. now that I've actually completed our, our first interview, I'm going to go and listen to everything because I really wanted to listen to Barn and Jared and, and Yoge and oh, everybody yeah. and Maddie. You got to, man. But you like, got to. I know myself and not, it's not just the silent phase. It's also like, you don't want to like be too affected by somebody else's point of view and then try to like, right. want to like, yes. yeah, teamsmanship, yes. me too. Like, I feel that way too. It's like, right. Right. it's great. <laughs> and every, and of course you like, you, you, you right. support and feel that way, but it's like, uh, yeah. Anyway, a microcosm of, uh, you, you, of, of the real thing, which we got today. <laughs> Now, as long as there's no blowback and everybody hates me, I'd be very happy to come back on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's going to love you. They're going to be clam- clamoring for it. Yeah. Uh, I love it. So, so, Reed, we have a, our, our famous last question. Um, Great. And that is, what does Sloyd mean to you? In under 10 seconds. Under 10 seconds. <laughs> being, able to meet, being able to make the things I need without having to buy a thing. Mm, nice. Yeah, that's that's Very the nice. meat and potatoes of it. Yeah, Very nice. Yeah, there you go. Man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's what it boils down to. That's yeah. awesome. What a great answer. Yeah. Oh man. Well, I've got a lot of questions, but I know that's going to open us up, open us up into a new episode. I know so. it. I know it. I know it. I took <laughs> so, up too much time. Well, no, not at all. Not <laughs> yeah, at all, man. This has been it's fun. great, man. It's been so fun. People, we've been getting so much good feedback. Um, yeah. People get a lot out of these interviews because Apparently. it's just. You know, we're not chopping these up and editing them. So it's just, Excellent. you get what you get. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I love and, it. You know, if it's too long, just listen to it in two sessions. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, so yeah, thanks again, Reed. I really appreciate it. And Thank we'll definitely, guys. we'll definitely be in touch in the future. And, um, awesome. Where can people find you, Reed? If they want to check you out, uh, buy some stuff from you. They can check me out on my website, which is a dot net. It's www.reedschwartz.net. And right. uh, although my books are closed right now because I did take some orders last year, I am right. uh, I'm working hard to get caught up on it. And then I plan to run a couple of batches of ready-made stuff. Awesome. Sweet. But we'll wow. sort of plan on uh, upsetting the announcements and stuff so it won't cause such a rush. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I hope I hope to hold one of your tools one awesome. day in my hands. <laughs> oh, so awesome. I'll definitely be uh, oh God, keeping so an eye out for, for your stuff. <laughs> it really never gets old. I'm still just like totally floored. Thank you so good. much. Yeah, yeah, man. You're welcome. Thanks, Reed. We'll talk to you soon. What man. a pleasure. Take care. Enjoy, guys. All right, buddy. Take care. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Yeah.